Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays, everyone. You ask for it, and he's back. Rojo's here on the podcast, and we're in the holiday spirit. We usually reserve this only for subscribers, but we're releasing it to everyone. We're bringing him back with leaked audio from the Let's Run.com Monday conference call. What does this all mean? This is like AAA baseball. Great. Colin Harris can run 2859. That's like running 242. That's like running. Did you just call him Colin Hehe? Yeah. I mean, that's like running like. I think he's combining Colin Benny with Martin yeah. Harris. That's like running. It's literally like running 215 back in the day. It, no, yeah, it's not. I mean, 215, uh, Robert. Not, two, not 215, but like, come on. Like, this is like 212. No. Oh well, no! Well, no, I'm, I'm talking about in comparison to the world, the world record. When when Bill Rogers used to run, I used to run 208. The world record was 208. So this guy just seven minutes off the world record. Now, in terms of the shoes, I would say this is equivalent to a 212. Oh my God! It's so good to I was slaving away, staying up till 3 a.m., sending out the hundreds of shirts that were ordered. Thank you, Let's Run Nation. The shirts are in the mail. Hopefully many many of you have already gotten them. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I was happy to, to personally sign a letter to everyone who purchased a shirt or a membership. We had Olympians. We had NCAA champions. We had World Marathon major podium finishers getting shirts, memberships. If you want to sign up yourself, you can go to shop.letsrun.com. Um, how do you sign up for membership? Let'srun.com slash subscribe. Yes, holiday pricing still in effect. 75 bucks now for the year with a free Let's Run.com shirt of your choice. Let'srun.com slash subscribe. Anyways, I tried to get through y'all's podcast last week and almost fell asleep. So I am glad to be back. But come on, guys. That's not fair to, to, to play that leaked audio. I am an, a, a Marty Hayher fan. We ha- I just interviewed him yesterday. And... We're going to have that interview on at the end of this podcast. We're going to have Sarah Hall at the end of this podcast. We're also going to have Scott Fobble on in this podcast, right? All three. Yes. The top two finishers, and I would say the most popular guy going into the race. So action, jam-packed, holiday special for you guys and girls. But you'll see. I, Steve Soprano, employee 1.1, and I, we're in awe of Marty here. Now, I'm not saying that he, the marathon, marathoning is back. I mean, in a six-year period from 2013 to 2019, only six American men broke 210. We had seven do it on Sunday. That's cool. That's great. It was an amazing event. It was fun to watch, but it doesn't mean we're at the top of the world again. But I'm in awe of this guy. You'll hear the audio at the end of the interview, how I praise him. Well, then I want this audio, the other audio played right now. Find it right now. I know I said on, that, on, on the Saturday, on the Monday conference call, I said if Reebok has a PR person worth their salt, this guy should be on Good Morning America. Marty Hare's amazing. This guy's in med school. He's treating COVID patients. He's got two children. He's a married man. This is amazing. He runs 2859. So find that audio. I demand it. I don't want to have Chris Fox, Brian Bell, and the whole Syracuse mafia mad at me for the rest of my life. Glad you know his name now. But... All right, here we go. In, in, in the holiday spirit of fairness and forgiveness, Christian message. If Reebok has a PR team with half their salt, it should be in Good Morning America. He's treating COVID. 
treating COVID is like saying, it's like saying Black Lives Matter. It, 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 it's like get out of jail card. Like, it, 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 you should be on Good Morning America. Guess he's, well, your wife watches Good Morning America. Has he been on there? I don't know if he has, but he will be on the Let's Run podcast later today. We're going to talk about the Marathon Project in great detail. We've got other things that are talked about in the show. It's going to be a jam-packed show. In addition to those three interviews, in my mind, folks, breaking news last week, David Rudisha is done. I'll tell you why. A Japanese high schooler woman has run 1437, not just a dude. Amazing. Um, the Milrose games are canceled and could they possibly be permanently canceled? All of that and more. But guys, I guess we have to start with the Marathon Project. Well, first of all, don't slander. I'm a New York suburban guy. The New York Milrose Games are slated to come back next year. Like, that's just bullshit, Robert. Come on. And I also need to I need to uh, clarify some fake news here, Robert. Robert said a Japanese high school girl has run 1437. She goes to a Japanese high school, but her name is Teresa Mathoni, and she's actually Kenyan. So just to clarify the information here. I said a Japanese high schooler. That's like Lucas Verbeckis. He was an American high schooler. I agree with you, but when I tried to point out that Lucas Verbeckis wasn't an American citizen, people called me xenophobic. So I would just, now John's... I'm um, clarifying a possible point of confusion. I'm getting ahead of it. I now I purposely did say Japanese high schooler because I wanted to get more attention. I, I I do try to make the podcast a little bit more interesting. But as you guys saw in that leaked audio, I do it on the conference call. It's not just a show here. I do it all the time. I mean, the conference call Monday morning is kind of boring. I know his name's Marty Hare. The Marty Benny or Colin Hare, whatever I said, was a joke. <laughs> The first one? I don't know about the first one. <laughs> Come on, guys. You got to admit, it's amazing. These two guys go to Syracuse. They're amazing. They're, they they get eighth and ninth at NCAAs, and then they get like fifth, sixth and seventh at the trials. They're they're very similar. Sixth runner. and ninth. But. Yeah. And actually, in interviewing uh, Marty, I was pleased to realize I was there for his first big college win. He won the famous John Rife Memorial run at Cornell. It's like the JV race. He redshirted his freshman year and he won it. And I remember like the Syracuse guys put like, it was their B team against my B team. And they put like 10 guys. I heard of my first, first guy. I was like, man, like, I know this is my B team, but why is their B team so much better than mine? Why is their B team better? I mean, cause their A team's also better than yours. I mean, it's not that hard, but anyway, I, yeah, a lot of things to talk about from the Marathon Project. I mean, I, I have, like, conflicting feelings about this whole thing. Because, first of all, I think the event was awesome. Like, kudos to Ben Rosario, Josh Cox, Matt Helbig for putting it on. I thought the broadcast was really well done. Like, one of the best I can actually remember for a marathon. I gotta jump in almost for that one. Everyone's, John's just, like, raving about this thing. Like, he criticizes every broadcast and decides this is the best one ever. Well, maybe just because they just showed the race, but... Well, I don't know. I, I watched the broadcast well, then. Can you say the same? I did watch the broadcast. I did not watch the NBCSN broadcast, which is what actually most of the world watched. Uh, I didn't... Yeah, I didn't watch but, that. But, you know, it was just like they had three cameras and they showed the races, which you should always, always do. A lot of times I thought they were showing the third place woman in, or, like, the second group with Ben Bruce instead of the leader. I couldn't figure that out. But it, it was what you... I, okay, fine, yeah. Maybe it's just like, this is how a race should be broadcasted. Yes. Maybe they're just not. But I, That's what I think this, okay. the answer is. I think many of them, I watch a major marathon and I have complaints. And I'll see, 
They're showing too much the wheelchair race. They're energy reviewing the wheelchair race when the other races are running. They're showing the mass race, all this stuff. And this one, they didn't have the mass race of the wheelchair runners, to, wheelchair, which are athletes to focus on. But I just thought they got the split scheme right. They had splits on the screen for the, like, timing mats with, like, 20 deep leaderboards. The commentary was good. I think there were just so many things that we normally hope for in a regular marathon and we don't see. We got them on Sunday. Okay, in fairness, John, also maybe you're calling me out because when this race finished, I was Christmas shopping. I was streaming through my headphones. I don't know if my wife knew I had, I kind of had these wrap headphones that sit behind your ears. <laughs> she knew what I was doing. But I felt like also when they finished, though, they immediately turned to the women's race. And I was like, wait, who got second and third in the men's side? I feel like they missed that. So if you want to be super critical, you could be of, of all these broadcasts. But all in all, this was solid. Professional running comes first. And let's not forget that in the broadcast. Well, as the only broadcast professional here, I've done extensive Ivy League broadcasting on ESPN Plus for the last, what, three, four, five years. Um, I did, will admit I didn't listen to the whole thing. I had it on 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. I, I mean, I listened to most of the first of the two hours, but two and a half hours, but I didn't see the whole thing from start to finish. But I was pleased to see a tweet that Des Linden sent out after the meet. Um, she had pages of, of, of paperwork. She did a lot of research, which is good. She said I, she was way better than Amy Craig or any of these other people that have tried to do it. We're trying to get some diversity out there. I'm jealous. I think I should be doing the Olympic broadcasting. When I do a, a, a track meet, I have about 100 pages of, of notes. She had a ton of notes. I don't know if she had 100 pages, but she did a very good job because she was well-prepared. It takes a lot of work. It doesn't matter if you know the sport in and out. If you don't have all the stats, no one's going to know who the 13th place finisher is unless they have done the research. Like No one's brain is that good. Even Jonathan Galt did not know three or four of these guys in the top 10. So good to her. But anyways, let's talk about the actual performances. What happened? Again, we said seven sub, sub 210s led by the 2859 by Marty Hare. Noah Drotty, what a good story. Misses the trials. Former D3 runner. Almost catches Hare. Vomits. It pulls a Bob Kempen in. Vomits all over the finish line. Just, it, was a, it was a compelling race. It was a close race. It was fast. It was good on the men's side. Sarah Hall goes for it on the women's side, which is what I wanted to see. And I was really also wanted to see someone go with her. Hats off to Kellen Taylor. You know, ended up blowing up. But I, hey, I, when I saw her up there, like I was like, oh my God, was this the plan all along? Maybe, um, you know, Coach Rosario set this whole thing up because he knew Kellen Taylor was secretly in American record shape. And they just didn't want to tell anyone. I was thinking that for a while. And now, you know, and, or did she just wake up and think, screw it, I'm going for it, you know? And, um, Kara D'Amato, one of my other favorite stories of the year. I mean, it's just inspiring to see these people who have a lot going on in their life running so well. D'Amato's got kids and a job. Boom. 222. Sarah Hall's adopted four children. 221. Marty Hare. 220. Yeah. And, and Hare. So, cool stuff. Um, it, it, it was a great race, but at the same time, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it doesn't mean that much. It doesn't mean that we're not internationally competitive. And Jonathan Galt wrote a good final takeaway piece on the Mar on the Marathon Project that he put up yesterday. And I helped him on one port on there to, to sort of make it a little bit more controversial. But, you know, it, it's a good read. It's like, A, it was a good, he says this was a fantastic event. Amazing job by Cox, Rosario, um, meat management, everybody. I mean, amazing. So good. You know, good running by, by everyone involved, but it doesn't mean that we're internationally competitive. I would argue we're not really even any better off in the marathon on the international level than we were eight years ago on the main.
Yeah, on the men's side, I I mean, look, you got one guy who's really going to be competitive in in majors. That's that's Galen Rupp, and everyone else. It's sort of, you know, you need sort of things to go right. You need maybe a weaker field or a wild day. Like even you know Scott Farble and Jared Ward, they both ran two oh nine in Boston in in twenty nineteen. We're all excited. What did they get in that race? Seventh and eighth or something like that. I mean, it's you know two and nine even on Boston. That's not always going to be competitive. If the winners running two oh seven, but. No, I, th- I thought it, I, I think on the women's side, Sarah Hall. I mean, look, Sarah Hall is legit. Clearly, like she was second in London, and yes, she was helped a little bit and by the race dynamics there. A lot of women went out really fast, but she still ran an excellent race. I mean, two twenty on that day, two twenty two on that day, two twenty thirty two on this course. I mean, that that was spectacular for her. Really good, Kellen Taylor, Robert. You gave her a shout out. I will say she did come away with a half marathon PR. She came through in sixty nine thirty nine, which is not only a PR but a. Uh, Hoka NAZ Elite t- club record. Uh, they had like certified split there, I think. So she did get that at the very least, um, which I thought was impressive. I mean, how bold do you have to be when you're someone who's as good as Kellen Taylor to come through a half in your a marathon and your half marathon PR? That's tough. I mean, we saw some other guys do it on the men's side. Uh, Ian, Ian Turner did it. Ian Butler, I'm sorry. All right, I'm terrible. I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Wow, 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 wow. Let's run nation note that I was looking at, John, I was looking at the Marathon Project entries to make sure I knew who these guys were, like eighth place and stuff. And I'm like, it's Butler. Wow, what if we figured this one out? Yeah, shoot. I was like 50% sure. I was like, oh, come on. You just wrote about this guy. I forgot his name. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Ian Butler. But yeah, he did the same thing. He actually ran half marathon PR for both halves of his race. Come on, Ian Butler. Noah Drotty put the tweet out. Ian Butler is, is the performer of the weekend. This is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's not like this is some young guy who hasn't been trying for a while. He's a former D2 runner. He's been running for a long time. He runs a half marathon PR in the first and second half of this race. Unbelievable. 209. I mean, bow down to this guy. Amazing. And it's kind of crazy because who does that? Like, you have to have a different mindset. And the one thing I found very interesting, do you guys know who Ian Butler's coach is? Steve Jones. Former marathon world record holder? Did he set the world record? He he did Chicago. Tell him about Chicago, Weldon, because this is exactly what you're going for. Exactly. I think while I'm trying to look up the Steve Jones stats, I know the stats. Back in 1985, Steve Jones at the Chicago Marathon. The, look, 85, remember, the, the, the marathon world record at the time is 207-12. The half marathon was like 60-55. This guy goes out in the marathon in like 61-30-something, 61-40. It was crazy. He was totally, I mean, going to just obliterate the world record by like three or four minutes. If he held on, he didn't quite hold on. I think he missed the world record by like a few seconds, but it was amazing. You know, Craig Matram-esque, Warren Fleshman-esque, big balls, put them out there type run. And you can't be afraid. And Ian Butler wasn't afraid. And he's gonna, he's now a 209 mayor. Yeah, this Butler performance was just Steve Jones-esque. As Robert said, the halfway split was 101.42. The half marathon world record at the time was 101.14. And Steve Jones faded and missed the world record of the marathon by one second. I mean, it's just, like, epic. But somehow, these guys are clicking, right? Like, a lot of people don't think, I'm going to go set two half-marathon PRs in the marathon. So you have to believe that before you say it. Super shoes or not, like, holy shit. This this podcast is going explicit. I mean, what a run. For sure. 
it's interesting. I, I look at like the overall results, and one of the best takes I saw on this was not one of mine or Rojo's. It actually came from Mario Frioli in the morning shakeout newsletter. And he said, the marathon projects are a new bar for American male marathon. It's not what's possible, but what should be expected moving forward. That's not to take anything away from any of these guys. All of them except Scott Falbo ran personal best on Sunday, but more to encourage them to continue raising the bar from here on out. We can't be content with 208s and 209s, but for now, the whole lot of them are worth celebrating for what they represent, a shift in the belief of what's possible. That, to me, I, that nails it. Like, 209, okay, that's great, but, like, our 10th best marathoner needs to be running 209 in the United States now if you want to start keep moving forward. And that gap still needs to be closed, but I think, yeah, this is a, a step forward. Yeah, I just think it's cool that some of these people who aren't necessarily getting the publicity, I mean, like Sarah Hall and Marty Hare, are now getting publicity. I mean, Hare was good at the trials. He was six. The top five guys from the trials don't run. So I guess theoretically, maybe we should have been predicting him to win. I think he's now, I think we should say he's better than Jared Ward. He's better than Scott Fobble. The trials wasn't a fluke. That's concern. But my, that's my, my take. My favorite takeaway on this, John, came from a message board poster called Pavement 88, who wrote on the message board, Marty goes to med school full-time and does most of his training in South Philly and his treadmill. These dudes who are full-time pro living in altitude should be embarrassed. You'll hear more from Marty later when we interview him. We ask him about the altitude. They don't even do that. And the Reebok Track Club, coached by Chris Fox, two sub-210 guys. Congratulations, Chris. You keep getting the job done. Uh, John, I have a question. Though. You did a feature on the Syracuse program a few years ago. We can link to that in the show notes if you haven't read it. But is it an actual requirement that you're a Syracuse grad to join the Reebok Track Club? Like, you know, there's a lot of things about that team that sort of don't make any sense to me. Like, they don't say you have to be a Syracuse grad explicitly. They don't say that you're not allowed to live in Boston. If you actually are on the Reebok Track Club, you have to live in either Philadelphia or Charlottesville. It's kind of confusing. You, you don't wear Reebok shoes in the race. You wear Adidas shoes. It's kind of... It's kind of the Holy Roman Empire of uh, professional track and field teams. No, I mean, they they have some non-Syracuse guys. They've got Robert Domanic, um, but... It is interesting. Like, no, I, I, some people on the message boards, they're like, what is this? Just some Syracuse, like, this is just a way for Chris Fox to pay his Syracuse guys after they come there. And it's like, well, actually, no, like, Montehead is really good. Colin Benny's really good. Paige Stoner, they had a debut on the women's side, ran 228. That's pretty darn good. And Justin Knight's a, a world championship finalist. So you can say, oh, it's all Syracuse guys. But it's like, well, a bunch of them are actually pretty good. So before Robert made light of the, Reebok slash Syracuse Boston Drag Club. He also made light of the full-time runners not doing as well as Marty here. And we're going to hear from one of them right now. That's Scott Fobble, who in many ways is similar to Benny and here. You know, they're both not the NCAA stars, but very good at NCAA cross. Fobble's best was 12th. Benny's was 8th, 9th. Here, here, right in there as well. And these guys have all had success in the marathon. Coming into this one, Fabo, I think, was the most prominent guy in the field on the American side and pro- the most popular for sure. Jared we, Ward. We got it. What? I think Jared Ward's a bigger name than Scott Fabo. I'm sorry, Weldon. I mean, he's, he was he beat Fabo at Boston. He was a top 10 in the Olympics. I'd say he's the second most popular. But, anyways, go ahead. That's fair. Jared was a late entrant to the meet. Beforehand, it was all about what's Fab's going to do. You know, I think heading into the Olympic trials as well. You know, he had a solid run here. It's another 209, but he's the only guy who ran 209 and didn't PR. So 
Thanks to Polar, we have a segment. I mean, Robert, Fabos is a name now. He's, he's got a, you know, a non-running shoe sponsor in Polar. I mean, not many people get those sponsorships. So I think he definitely has established his identity. But he's one of the guys who runs 209, and it's, you know, it's, it's not what he wanted. So here's a Polar segment with Scott Fobble. All right, we've got Hoka NAZ Elite's Scott Fobble. Fresh off his fourth place, 209.42. Finish at the Marathon Project, his second sub-210. Scott, first of all, congratulations. Thanks, Walden. Thanks for having me. Before we get into detail about the race, I just want to play a clip. Polar has this, it's a great series on you. It's called The Road Forward. It's four parts, it's digestible. It was on your lead-up to the Marathon Project and afterwards, and they just dropped the last one. And... Anything that gives me goosebumps, I think, deserves a listen. And uh, but it's, it's it's a good segue into talking about the race. So here we go. All right, let's do it. In my entire career, I think I can win Boston. I think I can podium in New York and maybe win it. Um, I think, given the right day on the right course, I could run two hundred seven. I think I can make an Olympic team. I think I might be able to medal at a world championships or an Olympics. My wildest dreams, those are the things that I see myself doing. And at my lowest moments, like holding on to those dreams and like trying to get myself to see those dreams has been really hard. We're hoping that this fall will kind of be a way to right the ship really in 2020 and not kind of see this as an entirely wasted year. This is kind of my prime and I don't want to spend the next three or four years kind of wasting opportunities um so i'm all in for this this marathon project and uh just kind of an opportunity to salvage something positive from the last 12 months so there it is scott are you still holding on to those dreams yeah of course i mean i think to have any of those dreams there's a little bit of delusion there like i right when i ran 209 at boston and it was it was wonderful and i was in the lead pack for 22 miles i still lost by a minute and I think a lot of people could look at it and be like, well, like he can want to win Boston all he wants, but like he's not close. And that's fine. That's a fine opinion. They're right. I wasn't, I was close in the sense that I got there. I got to 22 miles in the lead group, but I couldn't close with those guys. But my point is that the dreams of doing those things, the dreams of running 207, the dreams of meddling at Olympics, the dreams of winning New York, winning Boston, like they require a leap of faith. And I think especially this fall when I felt like I got back to a point where I was doing the workouts I need to be able to do in order to eventually get to that spot where I am competing for the win. Like that little, that leap of faith was a little bit validated. The workouts were there. The training was there. Running another 209 was there. So yeah, I think I'm definitely closer to those dreams than I was a year ago. Or, you know, right after the trials. So I think the dreams are very, very much alive in that regard. Yeah, I assume they were because it was a very solid performance. I wasn't trying to imply that they weren't. And a theme of this series was where your delusions become reality with some line you have. And I thought that was interesting because the tagline of Let'sRun.com is where your dreams become reality. But sometimes I wonder if I'm telling people, I'm like, oh, you know, you're delusional. Some of the stuff's never going to happen. You, you got to... But if you don't have the dream, you don't have the belief, it's never going to happen. I mean, you have ever, like, the people in the media have every right to say that someone's dreams are delusions. And most people's dreams are delusions. Like, 
if you just look at the marathon project, for example, there were a lot of people's delusions that did become reality. Like Ian Butler, for example, he PR'd in the half halfway through. Like this is a guy I've raced 20 times and he's done the same thing every single time. He's gone out with the lead group. He's hammered from the front and he's faded. And at the marathon project, it came through and he runs 209 and he's has this in a lot of ways, career defining performance. And I think the way you, the way you make those delusions, those dreams, those like completely irresponsible beliefs of yours into reality is by putting your nose in it over and over and over again. And eventually it happens, you know, like Kellen Taylor, for example, comes through halfway in a PR because she's dreaming about an American record and maybe it didn't work this time, but if she keeps doing that, if she dedicated her entire career to going out in 6940, 6930, at some point it would click. At some point it would happen and that would become real. So I don't necessarily remember what my point was there, but I think just grinding it out over and over again was is sort of the recipe for fantasy becoming like a concrete thing. It's good to know Ian's done that before because we were like, who who goes out at a half marathon pace? Who even tries that? But But if you do it all the time... All you needed to work is once. I mean, it was a great run by him. And while we're talking about dreams, it's kind of funny because for me in the media, and I think I'm very jaded and very skeptical, I'm like, oh, yeah, Scott's for sure a 207 marathoner. I I don't even put that out there. Whereas I'm like, oh, winning Boston, those are so hard. You got to have a lot of things go your way. But like when I was competing myself, oh, man, like the day after the Boston Marathon, I would wake myself up and go from that run in my little six mile morning run on Flagstaff and be like, Oh yeah, I can win that thing. How, how, you know, and I'd always picture like, but I'm from Texas, you know, hot day, you know, like even when Meb won it, like nobody thought Meb would win it. Like Meb was way past his prime and he won the damn Boston marathon and he won the New York city marathon and he got fourth at the Olympics. I, I would say all three of those, he was past peak Meb Kofleski. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, maybe not. Right. Who knows? Or he, he was what he needed to be my point is about winning those races and having those big days is like you have to give yourself a lot of shots and you can be in really really good shape and it doesn't happen and i think you know there's a lot of really really great runners who were in really great shape on really big days and those career defining performances didn't happen but uh for the ones that did happen like the shalanes the mebs um the ryan halls the dezes like the reason those career defining performances happened was because they believed in themselves over and over and over again. And they got their heart broken over and over and over again when they didn't achieve these huge goals. But then one day they did. One day it happened. One day everything, all the stars aligned and they were able to grind out week after week, after month, after month, after year, after year. And it became kind of like statistic, a statistical probability that at some point, if, they, if you run 25 majors or marathons, at some point, you're going to pop one and have a career day like Meb did. Yeah. Like you you need your Ian Butler day. Yeah. In a major. Yeah. And, you know, I'll take your chances. Yeah. One thing I found interesting in the series was I think the trials really got you down, but you said there were points this summer. You're like, I don't know if I'll ever run 209 again. So how can the guy who dreams of Boston think like that? Like, were you just frustrated? Was COVID having you down? Sort of talk through that a little bit. Yeah. I think certainly. Like it's easy to be a little bit depressed and a little bit forlorn, I guess, uh, when there's nothing on the schedule to look forward to. Like a lot of my excitement about the sport comes from like having an opportunity to compete on a really big stage, like a Boston, like a New York, and this fall, like a marathon project. So in the summer when A, training wasn't going that well, and B, I wasn't motivated, 
it's easy to kind of like feel like you're beating your head against a wall and there's no way out the other side, but it was mostly a motivation issue. And, uh, you know, I mean, I just haven't been physically the same since Boston. Like I think most marathoners, most runners have down periods and I've kind of been in one for the last 18 months. And at this point we have all the evidence that we're out of it. Like the half marathon in Michigan where I didn't really, we hadn't done many workouts beforehand and I tied my PB the marathon in Phoenix where I run a 209 again. These are all the evidence I need to feel like I'm past this down period. But in the summer when I was like, man, maybe this just isn't like, maybe what I'm doing is dumb. Like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? That what that evidence wasn't there. Yeah. One thing I picked up from the series for sure was how important this race was to you. And I assume a lot of other marathoners. I mean, as a media member, it was great to have something going on, but then I thought back to being an athlete and I'm like, oh, wow, like you guys really needed this. I mean, you need something to train for. And if you're in a marathoner, there really wasn't anything. So I, I saw that. So the race itself, you know, you're right up there in the, in, in the pack. When when Marty starts to pull away, did he like put in a surge or you guys slow down a bit? Like uh, kind of talk us through the last few miles of the race. Yeah, so Frank, Lara did a truly wonderful job pacing, like as good as anyone could ever ask for. I think he went 20 miles, 19 or 20 miles. And money, just absolutely 455s on the nose. Mason Froelich as well, but 15 miles. So I'm giving Frank a little more credit. And my plan was to be back. I did not want to be like right on the pacer's shoulders. I felt like that was a mistake I made at the trials was like having some sort of anxiety about being right on the front. And I was like, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to let the pace come to me. It's going to be fine. So Frank steps off at 20 miles. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I need to be on the front. I need to be on the shoulders. Like I need to be able to respond to moves. And the loop, so like it's a 4.2 mile loop and the loop before it, I wasn't feeling very good. And I was like, just get to one loop to go, Scott, just get to one loop to go. And then you're racing. So kind of grind through some miles, get up on the front, get into the lead group. There's maybe six of us left and seven of us, maybe, I don't know. And Marty makes his move and we've been running basically 455s on the nose. And I tried to cover it. I mean, (laughs) I really did try to go with him, but I think whenever he made that move, 22, 23 miles, the lead truck was calling out mile splits and the guy who's calling out the mile splits leaned out the window and said 450 fastest mile of the race and that's when marty won it was with the 450 so going into the race you know i really felt like i was in like 208 30 pace a 30 shape but i think after the fact i kind of like kind of realized i was probably in 209 flat shape and when you're on 209 flat pace and like right on the edge and someone goes over the edge it's pretty hard to cover it pretty hard to go with that and had a couple really tough miles there and gave some seconds back and then it's hard to get those back when you're right on the edge and right kind of like in a lot of ways over the line so the last four miles i was trying to grind as hard as i could and colin beanie was right there i was trying to go with him noah wasn't that far ahead of me scott smith was there for a long time so i was just trying to race as hard as i could and try to push all the way into the line and just try to be, try to fight the whole way in. So Marty made that good move and I just couldn't cover it. Solid performance. Yeah. 209, two sub two tens, kind of bookending a down period in between. I think most people would take it, but you know, the Olympic trials and everything is such a focus for everyone. I can see how you might've been a little bit down, but that, that makes me think like, what's next? You know, all the spring marathons, the major ones have been canceled. So is there going to be a marathon project too? Have you guys even thought that far ahead? I would never expect Ben and Josh and I mean, Matt Helbig, the big river running guy to a lesser extent. Cause like 
Ben and Josh are going to gearing up for the track trials. Like they're not going to have this sort of like down period where they can devote. I mean, they both basically had two full-time jobs this fall. And I don't know that I could ask them to do that again, nor do I think they would want to, especially with the track trials and the Olympics coming up. Um, so I, I don't think there will be another marathon trials or marathon project to this spring. Um, I could see them trying to make it a yearly thing come next fall, but you know, I don't know in terms of like a concrete answer to what your what, or to your question where what's next is I'm not sure I'm on some downtime right now. We planned nothing ahead of the mar or like past the marathon project. Like all I'm doing right now is recovering and I'm enjoying some downtime and just recovering, I guess. But I'll have to talk to Josh and I'll have to talk to Ben about what opportunities are available, what excites me. I don't think there's anything really 100% off the table except for track. I don't really want to do it. It's hard on my body and doesn't really get me fired up. So it could be anything. This year was weird. Who knows what next year is going to bring? But I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it was cool that, you know, you hooked up with Polar. They did this little series on you. How did that come about real quickly, I guess? Yeah, I'm very, very grateful for Polar for this. Uh, this series. Like I first uh, started a relationship with them in 2018. I ran New York and we had like a little one-off deal. And then after New York went well, um, my agent, Josh Cox did a wonderful job of crafting this sort of partnership, this contract. And uh, you know, the executives out there, Tom Wayne have done a wonderful job. Like I've really felt welcomed to the polar family by them. And I've gotten to meet them a few times. Every time I'm in New York, I run with Tom Fowler, uh, usually in Central Park. And it's just been a really good relationship, really good partnership. Uh, in terms of the actual Road Forward documentary episode, episodic series, uh, it was kind of thing that I found out after the fact where Tom was sort of thinking about things he could do during the things that Polar could do in this sort of like weird period of where there aren't a ton of events and stuff. And he was kind of like, let's make this series and i was like i'm all in and we found some really really talented videographers to make it stephen kirsch and uh ryan cerner at rabbit wolf creative and just kind of made it happen so i'm really thankful to them for like investing in me and investing in sort of the sport and storytelling in general yeah it was cool probably a little added pressure but you held up well to it i uh, i don't know that it was that much pressure like i i'm i put more pressure on myself than anyone else could so um in a good way, I think. So, uh, no, it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I'll, I'll give you a solid, what, B-plus performance? If we, if we had to give a grade, what, what sort of grade to give yourself? Yeah, B, B-plus. You know, I don't, as I said in the last episode of The Road Forward, like, I'm not, I don't have the same euphoria I had after Boston where I just knocked it out of the park A-plus. But um, I'm really proud of the race and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to race. And I'm really happy that, my body held up the whole way. And what gives me, what excites me going forward is the fact that I was able to get through this block and all signs point to um, better things ahead. Yep. Here's the better things ahead. We need to have a polar group one in New York City. Can't wait. That'll be the day when we can have events like that again. Yeah. So thanks for doing this, Scott. November next year before the New York City Marathon. Let's do it. Uh, I'm down. Well, one thing's clear, guys. If you're top 10-ish, I didn't see a cross, you're pretty damn good. We've had that now with Benny, Hare, Fobble, which means I need to get back in the coaching game. I thought I couldn't do the elite level since I'm not at altitude, but Fox and Reebok, you have inspired me. I'm going to get with 
Let's run volunteer moderator Ryan Forsett. This guy has moved back to Maryland. He was contacting me over the summer. I don't know if he wanted me to coach him or what. He's like, hey, I'm a volunteer moderator. You're in Maryland. You're in Maryland. I never got together with him, I guess, because of COVID. I don't, maybe I just wasn't organized enough. This guy was 11th at NCAA Cross. Shit. Ryan, if you want to start coaching, John Kelly and I will coach you. Well, John, if we, if we don't get him down to like at least 209, we're failures, right? I mean, I don't know, Robert, your bold, your track record of bold promises isn't yes. exactly it, promising. That's true. So, we only have seven days know. left in the year, and my children's book is not out. It's not being sent to the publisher as we speak, unfortunately. But hey, I got several t-shirts out this year. I'm proud of myself for that. John, I want to talk about one other thing, though, on, on the message board. And some people were mad that we started, we pointed out like, hey, 209 isn't that competitive anymore on the world scene, even if it was eight years, you know, it really wasn't even competitive 10 years ago. But some people are like, why do you have to trash them? We were saying, you know, if Hayher was a 5,000 runner, is he really like a 1325, 1320, 1330 guy? What does that compare to in the 5,000? And some people didn't like that. You know, one guy in the message board wrote, hey, I was there at the race. I was at the 13.1 mile mark. The weather was perfect. It was a, what a gem of a race. Seven Americans under 210, you know, basically called it a race. This guy says it was a race for the ages. And, you know, and then someone follows up in that post and says, it's let's run done trashing on American distance, men's distance running, you know, and was mad that we did this. And I, that's why, John, in your analysis article yesterday, I started with all the positives. I wanted to be positive for like four of the six things, but I just, it's weird. When I watch other sporting events, when I watch a college football game, I appreciate it, for, it is for what it is. I don't th watch Alabama play Clemson in the national championship and then think, well, God, these teams would be destroyed by the NFL. And that's kind of what we're doing here. We're watching this event. I'm appreciating it for a minute. And then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. They're going to get destroyed by Kenya and Ethiopia. But at the same time, the thing that's interesting about running is it's kind of hard not to do that. You know, you can watch a, a certain level of soccer or basketball, or whatever, and just appreciate it for what it is. But in running, when an event is set up in time trial-like conditions on a perfectly flat course, and time is the thing that they're, they're, everyone's going for. Everyone's going for that time bonus in their contract. It's hard not to then, it's hard not to be a little bit negative, right? And, and try to put this in perspective after the fact. Like, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but when the whole race is set up to gear towards time, how am I not going to do that? No, I mean, the whole point, this is why people come to Let'sRun.com. We want the context, and you want to say, like, yeah, 209. Okay, good story for a lot of these athletes, but, you know, we, we cover the professional side of the sport at the highest level, and we know there are guys out there, you know, that are running 201 or 202 or 203 with regularity now. And that's simply what the bar has been raised to through the shoes. By acknowledging that, it doesn't mean that we're slamming the Americans. I think it's just providing context. Like, Americans, even before the shoot Super Shoes, like, it was Meb, Rupp, and, you know, Ryan Hall, I guess, towards the tail end, the, you know, the early 2010s. Those are the guys who are being competitive for Americans and majors. It's just, it's pretty rare for an American man to be competitive in a major marathon. And I don't think it's a slam to say, hey, these guys aren't competitive with the very rest in the world. I think we can appreciate them for what they are. And I think I think our coverage and analysis have struck the right balance. But you're definitely going to want to listen to the interviews at the end of the show because it was it was fascinating, right? I mean, Marty admits they were hoping to go off a 210 pace and run a slight negative pace, and they heard the pacer were going 209 flat, and they thought, oh, man, that's a little bit too fast. I mean, it's only two, three seconds a mile. 
But they, he was worried about it. And then afterwards, he's like, now he's happy because, hey, 208.59 sounds a hell of a lot better than 209.01 or 209.02. <laughs> I agree. Now, he's winning that race and having the 208 PB. I know 208 is not what it used to be, but still, I get, I'm, next time I see him on a major marathon start line, I'm going to get excited. I'm going to be like, all right, Martin Hay, he's a name now. He's a guy I'm going to be excited to watch in a major. New York boy who runs well in cross, he's got to go to New York. So, New York. Don't, we don't want to hear how you don't have the money because of the pandemic. You better pay Marty Hayer this year. Should we go quickly on the women's race? Because I feel like we gave that a little bit short shrift. I mean, that was a little bit, wasn't as, I guess the top time was more impressive. Sarah Hall running 220.32, number two all time. The race wasn't as, you know, compelling in terms of uh, head-to-head competition. Though, you know, we did have, like you mentioned, Robert, the Kellen Taylor Sarah Hall storyline that was pretty interesting. Kellen Taylor sort of petered out right around halfway, and then Hall fell off a little bit of the record pace. But I mean, two twenty 220 and two twenty-two by Hall and Demado—that's more impressive from just a strict time perspective than anything that was in the men's race. Yeah, and the thing that I'm excited about is I really think the women's ten thousand trials is going to be very compelling, unlike the men's ten thousand meter trials, because you've got so many women with the standard already. And then, you're, you know, you, you, I, I assume that a D'Amato and a Hall will also get the standard. Kaylin Taylor's got it in the middle of marathon training. And then you got Sissa and Huddle, and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of people. Jumping. I mean, Rachel Schneider coming up from the – she was a 1,500 runner in college. She's coming up to the 10K. And then you got marathoners like Hall and Taylor and D'Amato coming down. I, I think you got just such a nice mixing of distances uh, right in the – yeah, and I didn't realize that that Hall and Snyder train together often. So she she says that in the interview. So I, I it just yeah it, it's it's cool. I, I, it was weird to me like when I was watching the race at at, at the end, you know, John, I, I called you up. John, well, you're right. John was raving about the about the broadcast, but I'm like, John, I was listening to it in the grocery store right when the men's race finished, and then I was like, John, are the women on pace? Like I can still get better info from calling John. And getting the splits because John had been following him. Because I thought Sarah's face looked bad around 30K. I'm like, there's no way she's going to keep this pace up. She's going to slow down. But when they would cut back to D'Amato, D'Amato looks like she is so smooth. It does. She looks effortless. It was amazing to me to watch her run. She looks so good. Uh, she did look great. She was like smiling. She waved to the camera sometimes. She was just out there like, if you've ever spent five minutes talking to Kira D'Amato, you know that's just how she lives her life. She's very energetic and joyful and it was great to see that in the race and it's also interesting robert you mentioned like the one my one complaint actually at the broadcast was when hall was starting to fall off they weren't giving us updates whether she was on pace paul swanga and des and they were still kind of saying oh is this a american record could she get it in the final miles when it was pretty clear she wasn't and they actually heard from Paul Swangard after the race. He told me that live stats went down during the race. So that is why they didn't they couldn't give the pace projections because they their stats service went down mid race. But you were able to get it, John? Like you had your own? Well, I was I was going to a website and getting the splits and then putting them in this Excel spreadsheet that Weldon was doing. I feel for Paul Swangard. They didn't have like a Walt Murphy on his shoulder telling him these stats. It was just him in one location, Deslin in an entirely different location. And I don't know about you. I Paul Swangard's very talented. I don't think he's going to be able to put all this numbers into an Excel spreadsheet and do all the math while also calling the race simultaneously. I just think that's really tough to do. Oh, no, it's impossible. When I'm doing the broadcast, generally the play-by-play guy, Bill Spalding's going, and then I'm muting myself and like writing it down, trying to figure it out, and then I'll, I'll come back on. So, yeah. But, John... The Marathon Project is not the only thing I want to talk about. Can we move on to a few other 
topics of discussion. Let's hit them. Did you guys see this article that Steve put up on the homepage about David Radisha saying that he's going to make a decision on whether he's going to do the Olympics next year? This to me, well, did you see it? I did see it. I mean, I I wasn't, let me be honest, I wasn't particularly optimistic about his chances beforehand, but I am now less optimistic uh, after reading it. This to me, here's the quote from David Radisha. I am hoping maybe next year I'll make my decision whether I will come back and see the level of my physical fit. I read that and I'm like, okay, he's done. Officially, well, I guess unofficially, officially done. You don't, when you decide next year, an Olympic year, if you're going to come back, that doesn't work. This reminds me, I forgot, who was the quote? We heard it from somebody recently. You know, like if you're in a race and you have to decide whether you're going to commit to go to the pain and the hurt box, that means you're done. You shouldn't have to decide. That should be automatic. You can't decide in an Olympic year. I don't care if, even if you are super talented. Particularly, well, maybe if you're over the age of 30 and one of the all-time talents, you can't do it. Maybe if you were 20, you could get away with it, but not in the 800. He, he's the, look, he's the goat of the 800, but can you guys tell me, when do you think is the last time David Rudisha ran a race? 2017. Well then. I guess this is like Price is Right. I got to go over, one day over Robert's guess. So, I mean, he just said a year. July 15th, 2017. Oh, actually, you were damn close. July 4th, 2017 is the last time David Rudisha races, raced. So, He's saying that, like, I'm sorry, pretty much no one will come back after almost four years away from the sport, even though he is the obviously the 800 GOAT. Yeah, it's not happening. I don't think he would even make Kenya's team, let alone make the the final and beat Brasia. And a correction for the record of everybody. I had to step away. I'm doing business stuff here while commentating. I'm sure people are very bored with this podcast. There's just not a voice of reasoning here with me not being here the last few minutes. Robert said when Steve... Put the article up on the homepage. I put the article up on the homepage. I'm sorry, guys. I haven't been doing the homepage much recently at all the last years. There's been a drop in quality the last couple years. It's because I used to do it all. But I put that article up, and I thought the damn exact same thing. I'm like, there's no way this guy's going to be in the Olympics. And it just takes us a long time. You hold out hope. I mean, hope's eternal. But, (laughs) yeah, it's not happening. I mean, it's interesting. You look at all the Olympic events, there's really going to be a change in the guard because the 100 and 200 bolts gone, the 400, I mean, Wade Van Niekirk is in a... It's, he's certainly got a chance to... Re, he could still win the gold medal. I think it's going to be tough for him because he's had very... He's barely been able to stay healthy the last three years, but he's at least got a chance. But then 800, Radisha's gone. You know, then... Mo Farah, 5K, 10K, he's still he's going to be doing the 10K. Just can see he still do it. And then Centro, he's also had his injury issues, though he did make the World Championship final last last year. So could be in for a changing of the guard in all the track events. Why are you skipping Kipchoge, John? He's a shell of his former self. Eighth in, eighth in London. He's a has-been. Okay. How dare you? I will not tolerate Kipchoge slander on this podcast. I mean, Kipchoge, it's interesting because with the Valencia Marathon, half marathon, I saw my wife, I'm like, world record was broken and she, you know she said by who and i was like kibiwat candy which is how we pronounce his name wrong on the malcolm gladwell content podcast as well it's candy a we now know but i didn't even know the, the correct name at the time and she's like oh my gosh what happened and you know she's searching for the name but she meant kipchoge <laughs> she's like that's the guy she knows like he he's gotten beaten i'm like oh he got beaten in london weeks ago but he's still the champ in the people's minds and i still think and 
mar- marathon aficionados' minds. Line him up in a race, people are still going to pick him. You, you might pick the field over him now, but I'm still going to pick Kipchoge the next time they line up if I have to pick one individual. Yeah, that is an interesting debate because it always was Kipchoge versus the field, and usually you would just say Kipchoge, but now it is. I think the field, it's probably the field, but I don't know, he could come out. The thing is, we might not even see him until the Olympic marathon because who knows if there's going to be spring marathons and if he would even run one. So that's that's a big question mark. Guys, I have to run off to my COVID test. Yes. Don't worry, everything's fine. My daughter was diagnosed with the flu, but this thing was already set up. So just out of precaution, I'm still going to go. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. I hope you guys can bring this one home. I was very upset with the emailer who said he missed Rojo being on the podcast. We don't need to inflate his ego, but Robert, good to have you back. John, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Weldon. John needs to pick me up if the Patriots out of the playoffs. Dallas Cowboys, but the John, hope is still alive. Big weekend. I want to go there real quickly. Big weekend this week. Hope is eternal. And I shouldn't have discount, discounted David Rodisha. Dallas Cowboys, could make the playoffs, and David Rudisha could make the Olympic team. I think you guys are going to be hurtsing this weekend, if you get what I'm saying. Cowboys have a higher chance of making the playoffs than Rudisha. I still want Bolt to come back because I'm going to be proven. I said he would come back, and he hasn't done it. He's one of the few athletes. you got to give him props, actually, for sticking to his retirement. But, John, you talked about a changing on the guard on the men's side. How about the women's side? I mean, Caster Semenya obviously is not going to win the 800 Olympic gold medal on men's or women's side this year. Um, Faith Kipyegon, she could do it, right? Vivian Chariot, she's no longer in the 5,000, right? She's moved up to the marathon. Yeah, but what about, I mean, Elaine Thompson, she could easily win the 100 and 200 again next year. Amaza Yana, where is she? I mean, what a, what a great talent, but I mean, is she done? And I think she just had a kid, but she's... Jemima Sungon clearly isn't going to win, be, be repeating as Olympic champion. Nor is Ruth... And Ruth Jebet is not going to win the steeple either. <laughs> Anyways, we don't need to go too much in depth in that, but clearly there's going to be a changing guard on both the men's and women's side for a lot of the Olympics, which makes it exciting. But we were just talking you know, earlier about Kenya and Rhodesia. There's some more things I want to talk about from Kenya before we get to the you know, interviews with Sarah Hall and Marty Hare. And one of these, John, was an article, I guess Walden probably put up on the homepage, about Helen O'Berry complaining about wave-like technology and saying she viewed it like doping. So this article was absurd to me. And then she said at the end, I think it can be fair if all athletes are not, and not just one or two, more like 12 athletes where anybody can break the world record. So for me, it's better than to put one athlete in a race. If it's available, let it be available to all. So she seems clearly to believe, be complaining that like, look, she's a better runner than let's in that good at least she thinks she is. Good has got the world record. Everyone's talking about her. I didn't get into a race with wave like technology. My take on this is, Helen, fire your agent. Fire Ricky Sims if you want. I mean, give me a break. Ricky Sims is the same Bolt's agent. Maybe he's spending too much time with Bolt. I, I don't know. Hey, if you want to set up a world record attempt, get your agent to do it or join this Valencia race. I imagine they probably they might have let you do it. I, I don't know. You think they would have kicked her out if she showed up? I don't know. I mean, it's I, I don't know how the race came together, but... Yeah, I don't know. That crapping on Wavelight, like, look, Helen O'Beary hopefully will have a chance to run just as fast in 2021, but I don't think she should be blaming that. Like, G'day took advantage of an opportunity that was there. Everyone knows about Wavelight. It's not a secret at this point. 
You know, they had it at the Monaco meet. If Obiri really wanted to go for a world record, couldn't they have used, like, Joshua Cheptegei used it to break the 5K world record in Monaco. Uh, you know, it, it was at the meet where Obiri ran her first 5K this year. So, yes, Helen. So I didn't think about that. Great point, John. So Helen won a 5,000, right? Over Gaudet. Yeah. In Monaco, mm-hmm. where they had Wave White. So she could have asked for the Wave White and just put it at 1410 pace and gotten the world record herself if she was in shape. Now, maybe it's a little bit hot in Monaco, but I, I, I didn't like <laughs> I knew you'd figure out the way to put the weather in there, Robert. Wait, I guess the Jeptic guy got the world record in Monaco, yeah. so I shouldn't complain. But I just, I, I didn't like this, like comparing it to doping. Give me a break. It's weird. I am anti-shoes at some level, but the wave light doesn't bother me at all because I've always thought it's not fair. Like if you have a big enough bank account, you can hire pacers to go 30K or 35K or whatever. You can do the mixed gender race if you're a woman. But now the wave light makes it easier. Just follow that line. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I've, I have no problem with wave light. It, actually, speaking of Kenyan 5K runners, Robert, we need to bring up again Teresa Muthoni, who runs this 14:37. So it's crazy. Everyone's going crazy about Jenna Hutchins running 15:34, uh, American high school record last week, and then Teresa Muthoni, who goes um, to high school in Japan, she comes out and at the National High School Ekaden, she runs. 1437 for the five kilometer anchor stage on the roads. Like 1437 is a great time for a high school boy. For a high school girl to do it is just phenomenal. I mean, I don't know exactly the dynamics of this race was super uphill or downhill, but 1437 for the roads is is nuts. I've got some some details on it. So people are like, oh, it's downhill. Yes. According to Brett Lorner of Japan Running Blogs, Japan Running News, it's 20 meters downhill. Well, according to John For- John Kellogg's formula of every 10 feet being worth 1.8 seconds on a downhill, that's 12 seconds, Aiden. So add 12 seconds. You're still at 14.49. The reality is she won this leg by 48 seconds. She came from way back. When she got the, got the sash, people assumed that the second place team, Kamira Gakuen, had a, who had a Kenyan who's run 15.07 on that leg. They thought they were going to win because they knew that she would mow everybody down. Well, Cynthia Barre, the runner for, for the second place team, she's a 15.07 runner. She got beat by 48 seconds. So you can debate whether this is equivalent to a 14.49, but I think it's clearly equivalent to a um, sub-15. Now, what does this mean for the future? Again, that's our job is try to put it in perspective for you. Clearly, she's a talent. Does that mean she's going to be a world beater? No. We've seen on the women's side far too many times. Just because you're great at 18 or 19 does not mean you're going to be great in the future. But people have watched video interviews of this woman. Apparently, she speaks fluent Japanese. She looks young, so she's not some older age person. Um, but the previous course record, the previous stage record holder, it was 15.04. And that belonged to Felista Wanjigu, another Kenyan, who in 2008 ran 15.04 in this leg. And... She had earlier in that year run 1502 for 5,000. Now, she's still running professionally. Here we are 12 years later, but she's never run faster than 1502. And she's a 69 36 half marathon runner. So, you know, is this woman going to be the next Sammy Wenjuru type to come out of Kenya? Or is she going to be the next Felista Wenjuru to come out of Kenya? I don't know. I hope it's Wenjuru. And on the men's side, John, while we're talking about the National High School uh, Ekaden, um on the men's side, we had a new record as well. Uh, Sammy Wanjuru's stage three record has gone. Cosmos Mwangi, who also goes to Sierra High School, which is the same high school that the woman goes to, ran 22.39 to beat 
Wanjiru's record by one second. Now, to me, Wanjiru's record is still superior because he was obviously not wearing the super shoes. Speaking of super shoes, Renato Canova has gone to the message boards. And if you're a Let's Run.com subscriber, you can be notified whenever Canova posts. I follow Canova on the message boards. Whenever he posts, says someone you follow has posted. He's going off on the shoes down there. I enjoyed this rant. Yeah, it was good. But he makes it such a good point. Like, it doesn't make any logical sense that you're allowed to wear these shoes on the road, but not the track. He's like, the shoes should be banned maybe based on distance. Like, you could say, all you can wear these shoes, you can have a huge stack height only in distance races, only 1,500 and up, only 5,000 and up. But it does not make any sense whatsoever to allow them on the road, but not the track. It's just idiotic. I can get why they don't want the huge stack height shoes, because I think if they had these huge stack height shoots in the sprints and people start obliterating the sprint records, then it's going to be for the mainstream person. It's going to be bad. Sure. The distance nerds are the ones who really pay attention to the distance times, but it, it's weird. I still think like world athletics is basically acknowledging, wow, these shoes are a huge problem, but we can't turn back the clock. We, they could have, but when you're the head of the whole organization as a former guy, is a guy that was being paid by Nike for a number of years. I just call that a conflict of interest. Like he's obviously not going to want to push back against the shoe companies. Well, I just think, but I, I at this point, if you're going to allow them in marathons, if you're going to allow Vaporflies and the Adidas, you know, Adizero Adios Pros in marathons, let them happen, go on the track as well. Like also, Kanaba's whole point is like he thinks spikes are still faster. If you look at the Nike Super Spikes, the ones, the Dragonflies. They're probably going to be faster for a 10K than these uh, these shoes. I don't know the data on that, but I don't think that you're getting a massive advantage or maybe any advantage compared to the top spikes when you wear these shoes. I agree. If they're going to let them, they should let them wear this. Plus, it can help them with the wear and tear. Like maybe if you're a Mo Farah and you're trying the Olympic double, you wear the super shoes in the prelims to, just to save your legs, to save your calves from getting destroyed. And then in the final, you, you lace up and wear your spikes. That's his whole argument for Sandre Moen, who's his athlete. He said, look, he just wanted to protect his, his feet and you know his legs, which I, 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 I'm fine with that. I don't have an issue with it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Renato is right. Um, as, you know, and, and, and World Athletics needs to change that rule. Another kid in high school in Japan also ran a 31-39-10K. Woman. High school That's girl. What. Yeah. By the way, in the Sanyo Women's Road Race. All right, I'm calling it though. We've exceeded our Kenyan High School Japan segment uh, of the week. We're going on over a lot of time there. One other thing I wanted to go before we get to the interviews is the indoor track season of 2021. Because right now we just got the word on Tuesday that the 2021 Milrose Games have been canceled. I'm not really shocked by this, but it's interesting. They sort of blame the, the rising COVID cases and the pandemic. But I think there's a confluence of factors here because... The New York Roadrunners pulled their sponsorship of Milrose, and to my knowledge, they haven't been able to secure a title sponsor yet. New Balance, I think, also pulled off some of their funding for this event. This is what I've heard, at least. So, I think these things are not unrelated to the pandemic. It certainly could be they're less willing to spend money sponsoring events in a pandemic, and also, we don't even know what the meet's going to look like, but it's not happening. Well, y'all said in last week's podcast, when I I listened about the first half of it, y'all said that NYR and stop sponsoring Milrose. And I immediately thought this meet's going to be done or, or, or a shadow of itself. I assumed that the NYR was paying for all the elites, all the pros. And now who's going to do that? So I was wondering if it would be canceled last week, but come on, the idea that this race is going to be held in 2021 indoors in New York city to me was 
less than 1% to begin with, yeah. regardless if there was a sponsor or not. I mean, I guess, I guess you could have it with just the pros, but if you're willing to lose a ton of money because there's no ticket sales. But I'm well, if I was being overly dramatic, I'm worried moving forward. They'll probably still they have a name, they'll have a meet, but will it be a marquee meet if they don't have a sponsor? The NYRR Milrose Games, NYR's had cutbacks. It's going to take them a couple of years to get the financial footing back. They're trying to go more, I think, in the less elite stuff, obviously. It's not their focus anymore. I think that they're more focused on other things. So we need a new sponsor. Chris Lukasik, former 1,500-meter runner, world championship member, guy who almost beat Alan Webb several times. We know Airbnb has gone public. You're worth tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Please sponsor the Milrose Games next year if you're listening. Eccentric billionaire model, of course. But no, Robert, it it is a legitimate concern about 2022. I love the Milrose Games. I think it's great meat. But remember, back in 2012, they moved from Madison Square Garden to the Armory because, you know, it wasn't drawing. It was not a popular event. And I think the the Milrose at the Armory has been great the last few years. And it's pretty much, I think they pretty much come close to selling out. Like, it's still getting the fans there, but... I am somewhat worried. I, they need to secure a sponsor because these meets don't pay for themselves, especially if you're flying in pros from all around the world. So I hope that we have a Milrose Games in 2022. I hope it's as good as it always is, but we don't have Coogans and we don't have Milrose this year. You know, I don't know. I, I am a little concerned about the future of the meet. It's too bad we couldn't get like one of these, you know, pork, one of the, you know, they sponsored the new stimulus bill, John. We could have put a, should have contacted the congressman and gotten a couple million dollars of Milrose. AOC, get on it. Yes. Now, good news. New, New Balance Indoor Grand Prix is still on for now in Boston, February 6th. USA Indoors is technically still on. I'd be shocked if that actually happens. Well, here's the thing. It's interesting. US Indoors, they don't have it. They've never announced publicly like USATF has not announced a site publicly. It is not listed on their events. USATF has basically canceled pretty much everything. I'd be shocked if this happens, but I did sort of post on Twitter. I'm like, does anyone know anything about USA Indoors and someone who's um, scheduled to be like a an official for the meet told me, yeah, it's supposed to be February 19th, 20th in Albuquerque. So there's no world indoors to qualify for this year. I'd, I'd be pretty surprised if USATF actually ends up holding that. Speaking of things that may or may not be held, I think this will event will be held. Y'all talked about it on the podcast last week. The 2020 NCAA cross-country meet that will be held in 2021. Because there'll be two, two, two 2021 NCAA cross-country meets. That's going to be very annoying for statisticians. You're going to have two people claiming they were the 2021 NCAA cross-champion. We need, we just need people. You need people who win in March to also win in November so we can clarify. Yeah. You know. Well, can you imagine you apply for a job and you put in your resume, like I'm the 2021 NCAA cross-country champion, and then some guy goes to Google to verify your resume? Oh, really? Hmm. <laughs> you weren't fully honest. You only won one. You won one half. So... But, John, you guys talked about last week and on the podcast, you said that no fans would be allowed. So I immediately thought of two things. One, will journalists be allowed? That's the big one. I mean, can you and I go to the meet? This would be great. We could have the meet to ourselves. Just me and you hanging out, running all over the course. Oh, I think I'd drop you, though, Robert. That would be embarrassing. You just the co- All the coaches out there would see how much faster I am. Do we know? Uh, I I assume media will be allowed. Media have been allowed to, but I mean, most of these, I, Oklahoma State, I'm trying to remember, I think they actually did have fans for their meets this fall. But most of the major sports I've been following, media has been allowed. I bet if we come asked to go cover NCAA Cross, they'll let us. Well, we got to go. I've got friends in Oklahoma. 
Oh, I'm in. I'm look. I have. It's been way, way too long since I've traveled to a meet, and for good reason. Totally understandable. But I want to go to NCAA Cross. I have a streak going. I love that meet. It's one of my highlights of the year. I hope we're there. But then I thought maybe this is some sort of gig just to prop full track or whoever's got the streaming rights up. Because now all the parents, you'll have 500 parents paying 150 dollars no, to watch this meet. Robert, you got to think this is good for us too. The meet is back on a Monday. It's not long, you know, if people are working during the day, this was always a huge traffic day for Let's Run.com when NCAA Cross was on a Monday. Yeah, they, this and the Boston Marathon were the biggest traffic days. Oh, yeah. good. Good it's on a Monday. Yeah, because people will, and people won't want to, the average fan won't want to pay. So the parents will probably pay to watch. Maybe I'll broadcast it. I keep claiming I'm going to get the rights. Are they already out? Like, I'll do it for free. I'll put it behind a free, free. Oh, my God. No. You don't want to do this, Robert. You say you do, but you're going to have, if you do this, you can't be running around the course. You can't be having a good time with me. You've got to be worried about all this stuff. I, I think. I just put a set camera so the parents could watch, you know, the, <laughs> seven, the 125th runner run by. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do that. We've, you know, we've had a, ton of stuff to talk about this week there's a lot of fun having robert back on the podcast and we've got two great interviews coming up in a matter of moments so ever i mean this is a lot this is a christmas edition hopefully you guys get a chance to listen on to it that you're having a safe christmas and holiday season if you don't celebrate it but uh i don't know good to have you back on the podcast robert and best wishes to you your family and everyone thank you john same to you uh, I, oh by the way I was so upset when I was listening to the podcast last week at 2 a.m. when you guys accused me of taking the day off just to you know play with my son in the snow that I, in actuality I was fulfilling all these sh- shirt orders. I did punish you and Weldon and send out your shirt, your shirt, shirt, your shirts last. But I hope that you and your family get them before John should be there today or tomorrow. But um, for the record, folks, I'm the world's biggest Marty Hare fan. I'm pulling the bandwagon. You can jump on. We're going to start with the hair interview first because you'll see the praise that steve soprano and i have her for have him with him first so our interview with marty hare is next and then after that is sarah hall it's going to be a long show but hey you've got lots of time because it's a hoe until next time talk to you later okay we are now very pleased to welcome on marty hare here he is the champion of the marathon project 20859 he was a college star at Syracuse, where he helped lead the Orange to their first NCAA cross-country title in 64 years. Now he is a med student studying to become an anesthesiologist at Sidney Kimmel Medical College in Philadelphia. He was sixth at the Olympic marathon trials in February, and now he is the seventh fastest American of all time on a record-eligible marathon course, running 208.59 on Sunday. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, Marty Hehe. Thank you so much. That that intro almost makes me sound cool. Uh, I, I don't think that intro did you justice, Marty. I mean, John left out a big part of it. You're also a married father of two. So most of the people in the race that you're competing against are full-time runners. You somehow have a, I don't I guess it's not a job, but you're in medical school, which is a full-time thing. And then you have a family on the side. I want to bow down to you. Many people want to bow down to you. And the way I want to start this podcast, though, is you're also you're ruining the mental health of one of our employees. And yesterday we had our Monday conference call and we were talking about you and your life story and how amazing it is. And employee 1.1, Steve Soprano, who's actually an upstate New York guy like yourself. Okay. He had the following to say about about you. I'm just going to play the audio and have you react to it. (laughs) All right. 
mean, honestly, I do. Rojo, all right. I read his. I was reading his story in Dicet. I put the article up, and I'm like, like this. I so these people just make me feel like shit about myself. I'm like sometimes like I'm barely like getting by. Like my house is a mess, so I haven't like paid this bill. Exactly. Day. Like, it's and, and, but here's the thing, Rojo. I'm reading, and I'm like, wow, he's like a resident doing all this work and training for a marathon. Like, you know, running this high level. I'm like, how does he do it? But you're like, you know what? He doesn't have fucking kids, all right? He doesn't know what it's like. I mean, he's two fucking kids. He's two fucking kids. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, I suck. I just suck at life. I'm like, how does he do it? Two kids and tra- and being a resident and training for a 209 marathon? Or, well, 28, 59? Like, how? So there you have it, Marty. How do you do it? That's what I want to know. I mean, all right. So I think it's we should set some things straight. First of all, I'm not the only the only pro runner out there with kids, right? Look at you know Jared Ward, Steph Bruce. Like you know, it's it's you know having kids is definitely hard, and that that I would say is probably the hardest of all my jobs. Um, but you know, when you have kids, usually ho- hopefully you've got a super supportive, loving, significant other. And you know, for me, that's my wife, and she is like the backbone superstar heroine of our, you know, everything that, that, that I do. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't be possible without her taking on a huge load herself to, you know, make it possible that I can get out the door every morning and in the afternoon. Um, so I think, you know, that definitely covers that, that part of it. Um, and then sure. I mean, it's, it's busy. I got school going on, but I've always kind of took the mentality of just thinking kind of like a college athlete again. Right. So it's all right. We just, we have school. I have this requirement. It's more, it feels more like work since it's more going into the hospital and working shifts or going into the clinic and working shifts. But, um, so it's just like fitting in the runs, just like everyone else. I mean, there's people who get up earlier than me every day to fit in their runs before work. So for me, it's usually got to get up around five, five thirty, and get that hard training in before, before I got to be where I got to be. Um, and then I think a big part is also getting that like afternoon training session done. Like as soon as my, as soon as I get out of the hospital or get out of class or whatever, just get home, get on the treadmill or, or get right back out the door. Um, that way it's done. And then when I sit on the couch, I can just be done for the night. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really how it goes. It's, nothing crazy it's nothing like um you know i feel like people ask me all all the time like what how do you do it how do you do it it's like i'm not doing anything that no one else can do it's just it's just a big prioritization of you know the time how i want to spend my free time um and you know as sadistic as it is i spend that time in the wee hours of the morning just running for endless miles you know but i don't think you're just sitting on the couch you've got two kids that want to play with daddy right and do stuff and yeah and, yeah. and your wife is your high school sweetheart. Does she work? Does she stay home with the kids? Like what do the kids do during the day? So she, so during, for the last six months since Adeline, our, our second baby was, was born, she's been home. But my wife actually, she's the first doctor in the family. She is a doctorate of nursing practice. Um, she's a pediatric nurse practitioner. Um, just, just, and just got her doctorate this past May. Um, so she, she usually works, but since the baby's been born, she's actually been home for a night for this past six months, which has been really cool. Um, but she'll probably go back soon. And then, yeah, we, we usually have a nanny who like kind of takes care of the kids while we're both away. And then whoever gets home first kind of takes over and, um, 
that's generally how it works. It is, it is a big balancing act. That's definitely kind of like each day it's like, all right, what's, you know, how's the day going to look? How's, how are we going to account for all of our hours? But, um, I mean, it's just like a little bit of a team effort and it's, you, you just get used to it when that's what you do every day. It's, uh, it just kind of becomes the status quo. Yeah. Well, I know in the lead up to the race, you were at the press conference uh, on, I think it was Wednesday and you were saying how you had spent the last two weeks um, before working in an ICU unit, working a lot with, uh, with COVID patients. And then before that uh, I talked to coach Chris Fox and he said you were in Charlottesville, I think for around five weeks or so in November and you got a lot of training yeah. one month. Yeah. With, yeah. Uh, with Colin Benny. I'm curious, like that stretch in Charlottesville, were you taking classes remotely or was that sort of, did you have a break from classes when that was where you got all your good training in? How did that work? Yeah. So pretty much like when this whole marathon project came about, about, you know, three months ago and it was, and I committed to running it, it was because like I saw everything. It was, it was pretty much like a miracle how everything lined up with like inadvertently. Cause obviously this race was planned relatively last minute. Um, and in my schedule, I had a, yeah, I had a month of online, which was the month that I was in Charlottesville. Uh, and then I, and then I had a two week vacation block kind of Thanksgiving and the week after Thanksgiving. Um, because also during that time. So the answer is yes, I was doing online, um, on online classes. In addition to it's the middle of interview season for, for residency programs, um, so I'm applying to anesthesia programs. So, you know, I was banging out interviews and such, you know, it, it, it all got converted to, to Zoom, which, I, again, that was another reason this was all possible. Usually you'd have to travel to all these programs and go do your 15 or 20 interviews all around. You know, I applied in the Northeast and East Coast. Um, but being they all got converted to Zoom, it's just sitting in a chair for however, three, four hours and interviewing with your suit on <laughs> in a small room. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of how I spent, um, that six week block where I didn't have to be anywhere. Um, and it was like the, per- and it was the perfectly timed spot, um, about from, I guess, eight weeks out to a month out, um, where I was in Charlottesville proper training with it, with Colin and the team and the Reebok team. Um, it was that, yeah, I wouldn't have had, I couldn't have, couldn't have drawn it up in any better. So, Marty, you were sixth in the trials in February, and that was 2.11.29. That was a tough course, and that was with a bathroom break at 18 miles. So I know I went into this race thinking, well, if he's even in that same kind of fitness, he's probably going to run a couple minutes faster. And you ended up running, you know, two thir- uh, you know, two minutes, 30 seconds faster than that day. Do you think you were in the same kind of shape? Did you feel like this buildup went better? How did your fitness compare to February? Yeah, I think that was like a perfectly a perfect question because that was exactly my goal when I started training for this was to get back if I could get just into the same shape I was in for the the trials like that that's really like my goal. And I would say we we accomplished at least that um maybe a little better shape. I mean, we did the training build up was very similar, like a lot of the same workouts, roughly the same mileage. Um I think we just did it a little better. Um, in the sense of we got a little more out of the workouts, we're able to do things a little faster, um, but really not much. So yeah, I would say it was a very good comparison between shape of trials and shape um, for for this past race. Yeah. So you're, you're one of 
seven men on Sunday who broke 210. You're the only one under 209, uh, which makes you, I think you're the 12th ever to do it on any sort of course. You're the seventh uh, to do it on a record eligible course among Americans. I'm curious though, like, what do you make of all those 209s? Because this is the deepest race we've ever had in terms of most sub 210s by, you know, Americans in the same race. And some of the guys, I'm going to admit, some of the guys in that race I had not heard of beforehand who who broke 209. And you you are not one of them, obviously. Sorry, who broke 210. But there are a couple of guys I wasn't totally sure of. Like, do you, and we know the shoes play some role these days. Like, do you view 208 the same way you viewed it a couple of years ago? How do you view that performance? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the biggest factor in the, you know, what happened on Sunday was just the setup of the race itself, you know, and ju- just the, the event itself put on by, you know, Josh Cox, Ben Rosario, Matt Helbig. I mean, this race was absolutely perfect. The course was pancake flat. I mean, the, ter- the roundabouts weren't really a factor. Um, the, the weather was, was perfect. There was no wind. Um, the pacing was spot on. I mean, this was, this was truly like, arguably once in a lifetime opportunity for, you know, for a bunch of American guys trying to run really fast um, and Canadian guys, of course. Um, So I I think that there alone played the biggest part. There was, there wasn't anything to lose. There wasn't any spots on the line. There wasn't any like huge prize money purse. Like this was literally an event where everyone could take their shot and run fast. Um, And I think just having that mentality without the pressure behind it, like I think that definitely goes a long way. Um, I'm sh- sure. I'm of course like shoe technology plays a part. Um, it's really hard to quantify exactly how much, but um, yeah, I, I think those are probably the two, the two biggest factors. And I mean, that's that's what everyone was expecting, though, right? I mean, people were calling between five and ten people to break two ten. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, so when you're standing on the starting line, what was the goal? Was it to run a certain time? Was it to win the race? What, what did you and Chris Fox, you know, what, what did you? I have? think if you were to ask what we kind of drew up, we wanted, we, he would have said to win, like if I asked Fox what he wanted. But, you know, I think also we knew we could break 210. Like we, we, we wanted to run sub 210, um, which is why it kind of, ironically we were we were whining a little bit to ourselves like me and colin and fox like man 209 flat that's it seems a little ambitious like why can't we just go through in, in 65 flat and then uh you know see, see how it goes um but you know obviously like again kind of as i already said this was a huge opportunity for guys to go for and do something that they hadn't done before so we ultimately said all right we're gonna run this race um and just be competitive and try to win. So yeah, the goals were to win and break 210. Yeah. Well, you made your winning move at 35K and it sort of strung out the field. And then, you know, Noah Jardy was actually chasing you for a while. It was pretty exciting. But he, you know, you just kept fending him off. I kept thinking like, oh no, it looks like he's closing on him a little bit. But you, you just hung so tough that last five miles or so. I mean, was that was that the plan? Was like, why'd you decide to go at 35K then? Oh, that was absolutely not the plan. That was not like with four plus miles left in the race. I did not want to be at the front leading the thing on my own. Um, but what ended up happening was uh, Frank, the uh, pacer, like he um, did a great job and he pulled off at 22 and I was, you know, feeling fine at the, the front of the pack and I just ended up at the front. Um, so my initial thought was, let me just 
maybe give it a, a good mile here of keeping it honest. Not, and you know, we're, I knew we were doing it, so let's keep it going. Um, and inadvertently that turned into being a move. Um, I picked it up a bit and at that point I just had to commit. <laughs> um, I wasn't going to go backwards. So, um, yeah, I did. I then that was, that was really it. I knew I had to keep going. So fortunately I knew Jardy was behind me and I'll be the first to admit, I looked back multiple times in those last miles. Um, but I think I just kind of knew he had to be hurting just as bad as I was. So, uh, fortunately, fortunately we both had amazing days and, uh, I was able to hold them off. Well, one thing I noticed watching the broadcast, I mean, you had the pain face on for the last couple of miles and I was like, I've seen a lot of them in my day. I thought you have one of the best I've seen. Like I was just like, you could tell this guy's hurting, but he's also like not backing off the gas. Is that, and then I had like a bunch of Syracuse guys replying to me on Twitter. They're like, oh yeah, we've seen this thing for you. Like is the Mighty Hair Hair pain face sort of well known in your uh, running community? Yeah, that, it, it's been around a long, long time. I mean, I think it goes back to high school. Um, it's, yeah, I would say it doesn't always indicate how bad I'm feeling. Um, it's just, you know, the pain's there, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, that's just how I look. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you need to apologize. It's always like, I don't know. It, it's, it, I, in some ways I like it. It sort of shows me like, Hey, running 208 is like still really effing hard, you know, whereas some guys, if they just finish and they look like they haven't run a marathon, you know, you're like, Oh man, it's, they're making it look easy. You feel bad about yourself, but you you know, Harding and then Noah Drotty, as soon as he crossing the finish line, you know, throwing up that to me is like, okay, those guys had to work so hard to run that time. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it should look at the finish in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also I'm curious, like they said, one of the reasons we had this race was so that athletes who didn't have a chance to run a full marathon can sort of chase some of these performance bonuses because most pros will have some sort of time bonus in their contract or something like that. How big is your rebot bonus for running 208 on Sunday? Oh, come on, guys. You you know I can't say that. But, uh, yeah, there was definitely a, a nice bonus for uh, getting under 210 in particular. Um, so I'm sure a lot of guys are very happy, myself included. All right. It'll be a nice Christmas then at the Hey Hits with that bonus. We just want to make sure the nanny's getting paid properly. Yes. Oh, yeah. She's doing just fine. <laughs> uh, okay. I Speaking of actually shoes and money, I think I need to ask now uh, about the shoes, which is, you know, you guys, so you guys are running an Adidas on Sunday and you wore the Vaporflies at the, well, sort of looked like blacked out Vaporflies at the trials. I'm curious, like, why did you, I guess, why did you end up wearing Adidas shoes on, in the race on Sunday? Yeah, so you know, I knew that this question was was going to cu- come up, and and essentially what what I want to say is is you know Reebok. I've been working with Reebok, me and Colin and and the uh, females. Like we've been working with with Reebok on kind of designing our own shoe. You know, we're 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 fully set on making one of the best shoes in the business, and I mean, um, that's exactly what we've been doing over the last year, and it's it's. For, it's been really cool to be a part of that process. First of all, like, you know, it's just us running in these shoes, trying to get them just right. Um, and ultimately what it, what it came down to both at the trials and even, you know, it just goes to show how hard it is to make the right, you know, the perfect pair. Um, 
and for this race is they just weren't our our prototypes weren't quite ready yet like we literally just needed a couple more months um and it's really not a process you can rush just i mean stuff's coming from overseas it's uh so yeah so with that in mind you know reebok is fortunate enough to be part of the adidas family um and you know and have access to their their product and their then their tech in the meantime so that was pretty much that's the reason why we wore the adidas um really and then why would the nikes in the past one they're again we were just like trying to make a shoe way too fast and you know we just weren't able to get there and that we just were you know, fortunate enough to pull the trigger and you know get the opportunity to run you know to be running in shoes that gives us the advantage that everyone else has you, you run 208 in adidas and 211 in nike would you say the adidas shoes are better no i don't think there's any difference between any of these super shoes i think they're all pretty much e- equivalent yeah okay so the, the question i have about the shoes is really about i'm kind of like you i don't care about the individual brands i i want to i don't want the shoes to be deciding the race i want the, the you know the runners to be deciding the race and the coaching and dedication etc but the question i have is let's say you were running in a pair of flats that you were wearing in 2015 at syracuse or something like that how much you know and, and or, you know, you used to do your tempo runs and how much slower do you think you would be running in a marathon? Like how many minutes do you think they're worth? Right. So how much, yeah, how much time do I think the shoe tech is worth from, you know, five years ago to now? I, that's, I mean, not, that that's a hard question, right? Um, it's really hard to quantify and we don't want to take away from our own performance. Well, I know, but it, it, I, I'm not trying to undermine it. I'm just, well, I know, I know, I know. Um, I, it's really hard to say. I would, I mean, I'm sure it's a range. But I would say minute and a half to three minutes. It, I mean, if I was to say something, but yeah. Well, so you still got your coach Chris Fox because he was only what two thirteen guy back in the day. So you're you're not going to give him four minutes. So I'm oh I'm not giving him four minutes. No way. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Do, so do you? I mean, part of me feels bad about asking these questions. Like as a journalist, they have to do it, but also like you are coming off the marathon. This is the race of your life, you know, 208 huge breakthrough for you. You'd be a very good field. Like, does it, does any part of you get annoyed or angry that you have to like, that people will ask about the shoes and that's going to be something in running fans minds every time they see these times. now. Yeah. I mean, not so much annoyed. I mean, I get more annoyed of where, where the anger and frustration goes, you know, I think people need to realize we as the athletes, this is, we are just running in the world that we are provided with. We don't make the decisions on these shoes. We are not the governing bodies of the sport. So, I mean, don't get mad at us. We have to run in, in what everyone's doing. We, we, we have to do what everyone else is doing. I mean, that's where the sport is. So you can be mad at us for running fast in the shoes. You can be mad at us. And then you're going to be mad at us for running slow. If we don't wear the shoes, I mean, so I just get a little frustrated that um, it's basically a lose-lose for, for the athletes in the mind of all, you know, a lot of, you know, fans out there. But um, on the flip side, I'm still freaking pumped. I ran 208 in the marathon and no one's going to ever take that away from me. So, you know. <laughs> As you should be. All right. But the question I have is where do you go from here? What's next? I mean, I read somewhere that you said you wanted to, you've been working a long time to prove you're, you know, one of America's best distance runners. In my mind, you had already done that. I mean, you'd finished seventh at the 10,000 trials, right? You were ninth at NCAA cross country. You were sixth at the Olympic trials. I mean, you had been really good, just not maybe you hadn't gotten the publicity because you hadn't won anything big. You hadn't 
Right. You know, but so in this win sort of gives you a lot more publicity. I mean, as I said on our conference call yesterday, I said, if Reebok has a PR team worth any salt, this guy should be on Good Morning America. I think your COVID story is amazing and the family and, uh, you know, you shouldn't be just doing the Let's Run.com podcast. But what's next? Like, are we going to – are you definitely staying in the sport for four more years to try to make that 2024 team? Or I guess it's three more years. Where do you go from here? You can, you know, I'm not totally planning that long term. Um, because you know, I do plan on starting residency program in in the summer. Um, and you know, things will definitely change and I'll have to adapt once again and kind of see how things shake out. But so I guess in the short term, I'm still I'm I'm all in for getting back on the track and making a bid in that 10k um at the the track trials. I think it's it's been a long time coming that I get back in some of my shorter events and uh, run, run a bit faster. And I think I can do uh, pretty well there. Um, so that that's the immediate plan. And then, yeah, after that, I think I would absolutely love to, um, you know, make another bid for the 2024 marathon. And I think that's something that it's, it's a little hard to plan out right now, but if history, you know, um, repeats itself, you know, people have been very supportive of what I do and my, you know, my side passion, um, in the sport of running. So if, if, if I, if I can make it happen, I will definitely be there and make a, a, a training block and bid for, for that team in 2024 as well. So I'm curious here, I'm going to throw out a name here. I want you to tell me what you know about him. Bob Kempinen. Yes. I mean, he's the name I always hear. Yeah. I know he is the same. He's the same. I mean, he was a marathoner. He ran during med school residency, um, and you know he he's an olympian if i'm not mistaken yeah 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 he he made the team multiple times uh and he is a legend um i I would love yeah he's he's someone i would love to uh have a conversation with um but yeah no i know he he's he's who i aspire to be that's you know he's still got me beat (laughs) it's funny that john's giving you a history lesson about kempton when we just gave him one five minutes before we started this this podcast so (laughs) we stood on the sports illustrated article it's shocking because that john doesn't know him because he's a dartmouth grad like john i do all right right, hold on let me set this record straight here i knew he was a, a doctor i knew that he was a dartmouth alum and i knew he's actually some of the similarities is pretty eerie Marty, like your PR, his, his your PR is two hundred eight fifty nine. His is two hundred eight forty seven. He was part of two NCAA runner up teams in cross country at Dartmouth uh, and was a top ten finisher. And you know he was also studying training through med school. Um, and I, I think he might have taken some. He was also in second, that, second but, in New York, Marty. I mean, so I've got some work to do on that front. Hey, New York. I'm a New York boy. I cannot wait um, to get the opportunity to run the New York City Marathon. I would love that. Yeah, well, we gotta we gotta figure out a way to get you in touch with Kempinen because that's like you know both of what both of you guys have done is incredible, and uh, we're, we're you know we're so impressed. Yeah, no, by he's that. absolutely a legend of the sport. So g- going back to um, you know, you, I want to go back a minute to, to sort of your college days. I mean, in high school, you were very good. You were 14th at NXN. Um, so you decided to go to Syracuse. I mean, back then they weren't really a, a powerhouse team, right? I mean, they were kind of making NCAs when you went. Um, it's my understanding you turned down several Ivy League schools. I don't remember recruiting you at Cornell, so maybe. Yeah, I wasn't on the list, unfortunately. <laughs> you were probably too. Once the kids got really good, I just figured they weren't going to be coming, so I would drop down a little bit. But uh, what what made you choose Corn uh, uh, Syracuse? 
Yeah. What I mean, ultimately, it was I was yeah I was recruited to. I mean, I wasn't as heavily recruited as you know as some of the top guys in the country. I I was good, but I wasn't winning you know any state championships or anything like that. But um, Syracuse. The reason I mean, Syracuse was at that time they would finish pretty consistently middle of the pack at, at NCAA's. Um, so I knew they. I mean, but they're you're good if you're making NCAA's. You're you're, you're still a good team. Um, and it, yeah, it was just a combination of just that perceived like goodness of fit. Like I got to campus, I talked to coach Fox, I talked to coach bell, I met the team and they just, I mean, personality wise, we jived perfectly. Um, so there's that, I mean, financially, I, you know, was able to get a full scholarship to run there and that obviously plays a substantial part. Um, so those two things. And I mean, coach Fox, just the, I mean, him and bell, like the conviction with which they said, look, we're doing this. Like we're like we might not be a podium team now, but we're gonna get there with your help in the next five years. Um, I mean, I just believed them. I mean, it's and and it it's just yeah. I don't know. We just kind of had that sort of trust and and right from the very beginning. And um, yeah, that was one of the best decisions of my life. Yeah. Well, you believed when Robert didn't because Robert was Robert was not a believer in Syracuse becoming a podium team. Hey, Chris was a mentor to my brother, and, and the joke is that Chris decided to retire from running when my brother beat him in some road race. He never heard of my brother, but they got up there, and we'd be hanging out at these upstate New York meets, you know, in the middle of the winter. It was like their first year when the team wasn't any good, and I said, I remember saying to them, like, "How is anyone you're going to get anyone to come to Syracuse over Georgetown?" And Bell put that like put a picture of me up on the wall, and just every time he was recruiting. <laughs> motivated him and every time you guys would smoke georgetown you know i think that made him feel good so oh man it must have been really special to to build something like that and, and you know that would be my, my my recruiting pitch if i was at a school like that like yeah you can go to stanford yeah you can go to you know wh- wherever you want to go wisconsin but you're never going to do anything that hasn't been done in the last five ten years there if you come here now you can make it and you guys did win it i mean three guys in the top ten you know, I was like, oh, John, was he the number one guy? And John's like, no, he was the third guy in that team. Third. <laughs> so pretty amazing. But and looking at your at your you know, your other credentials, um, you know, you were a sub four minute miler and you made the ten thousand meters in NCAs in the track, but you never really had the big track success in terms of, I don't think you ever scored in the track, right? At NCAs. I I, I got all American in an indoor three K one year. Okay. Are you just better like at the roads and cross country, do you think? Or but then you did well at the at the, at the ten thousand trials in in, in twenty sixteen. So yeah, I, I you know it's that's a good question. I have no, I love. I mean, I like the track. I, I love the roads more. I'll definitely admit that. But um, it's just funny. It's been so long since I've like really like been competitive on the on the the track. I'm not. I I, I do think I can run a lot. I think I can really run a great ten k right now. Um. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I don't the I I definitely had issues getting out to Eugene um for the 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 10k in June. Those the allergies were a huge issue for me. Um so that was always kind of something that I had to like I think I like over pre- kind of worried about slash tried to prepare for. Um but with the trials, I found out, you know, a day and a half before the race, so I didn't even have time to like you know, get worried. I flew out there and raced the next day. So, um, yeah, I think it's just, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm bad at track. I think I just really haven't had the opportunity in them to, to really like 
flourish out there. And you mentioned New York City Marathon. That's sort of a race, you know, as a New York guy, that's something you'd like to do. Do you have anything else on your running bucket list that, you know, big events or like big barriers you want to break? I mean, that, I mean, just, I mean, New York, Boston are always races, you know, as, you know now that I'm a marathoner, those are, of course, two, two of the big ones I, w- I would love to eventually run. Um, yeah, but really outside of that, I mean, just that I'm, I've definitely checked a lot of my boxes I, I wanted to, to, to check, but it's really, you know, the sport we're here to try to make Olympic teams. So that's, that's always going to be the, the, uh, golden standard as far as goals go. Yeah. And one more thing, uh, I mean, we're running, you know, we'll let you go in a couple of minutes here, but I wrote a story on you back in March, right after the Olympic trials about you going to the, taking a bathroom break at mile 18. And that was, that was one of the most read stories on let's run.com the entire year. Like people loved it. And I'm curious, like, well, and the Google algorithm loved it, John. It's yeah. all about Google. We got to bow down to Google. Well, hey, don't, don't tell Google that, but, uh, of the year 2020, but yeah, I'm curious though, like how did you, how many people have reached out to you about that? Like, is that what you became known for? And if so, like, were you okay with that or? Um, you know, fortunately it didn't, you know, people who know me and my, my circle of people, I mean, we all knew and joked about it and that, you know, it didn't, it didn't really affect me too far going, going forward. I think, you know, had I pooped my pants, you know, that, that might've had some, some longer repercussions, but, um, no, yeah, fortunately, you know, it's was taken and forgotten about on a normal time time frame <laughs> i mean i thought you handled it great i thought it was awesome that you did the interview and you know just opened up about it. and it's like makes it even more impressive actually that you were running with discomfort and then taking a break and it made me think i was watching the uh browns ravens monday night football game a few weeks ago and they were like everyone was speculating oh did lamar jackson go to the bathroom in the middle i'm like well even if he did like it's not like he was in the middle of a race you know that was you know if he did he had it easy right right yeah, and I mean, I definitely overprepared for this time around to make sure that didn't happen again, and it went right according to plan. So, <laughs> you know, so it sounds like on Sunday you over sort of surprised yourself a little bit. You're hoping for sub two ten, and you go sub two hundred nine. Yeah. But you know, obviously, the goal is always to improve and get better and better. When I look like, how can these guys get faster and you know even go sub you know go to the two hundred seven or two hundred six? The one thing I, I I look at your group. It's one of the few groups that doesn't seem to be doing any altitude training. So that can be a, if you're an altitude responder, be a huge difference. Do you think you'll ever spend any time at altitude? And yeah, I mean, so I did a year at altitude um, when I trained with the NAZ group out of college. Um, And I, you know, I did that game and it was great. I really enjoyed my time there, but um, I think I ultimately end up, kind of having a similar opinion to coach Fox, which is um, it's, it's, it's nice, but not, not a to- like, you don't, you don't need it to be good. Um, and I think, I mean, our group has already shown that between me and, you know, me, Colin page stoner made her debut at two twenty eight, um, as well. And it's just something that I think we, I think where we have room to go and you know something that we kind of pride ourselves on and is part of the coach fox philosophy is you know we really only train at 90 to 95 percent um you know we're big believers in not overdoing it in practice and getting to the getting to the line feeling great having hit all the workouts um and just having the the consistency in uh training so um i can wholeheartedly say i think we can 
we can work harder the next time around and just inch it up a little more, a little more. And that's where we have room to go and get better. Um, the, yeah, altitude isn't something we really particularly care about. I mean, personally, I much, I greatly enjoy being able to run race pace every week, you know, being able to go and run for four fifties and recover and be fine the next day. Um, versus running, you know, 520 pace out in Flagstaff and um just, you know, converting it in your head and knowing okay, I'll be good on race day. So I think it's it's all a, you know, it's a personal thing and sure there's some body responses and such, but I don't know, it's kind of hard to quantify. Well, it's tough too, like 120 miles at sea level is not the same as 120 miles at altitude. Like it, it's just tougher to recover, it's harder. I mean, that's something you got away. You might not be able to do as much volume if you're out at altitude or the same kind of workouts. Right. Right. What is your volume at? So we, we hung out right between 110 and 115 for like, like you know, about eight, eight weeks leading up to the race. And are you in Colin pretty much step by step on every workout? Or are there some things you're better at than some things he's better at? I mean, did you think, Oh, I'm in a little bit better shape than him. Or did you have any idea? About- no, Colin, Colin makes me work in every workout. He is, um, you know, being in, in Charlottesville in particular, it's one of the hilliest places I mean, I've ever trained. Um, and he is an absolute animal running fast over, over these like big, big ass hills and mountains. Um, and yeah, he, um, he is the most consistent athlete I've ever, like ever had the honor of, um, training with i mean he every workout he's gonna run it just a little faster than we're told and it's he's gonna be on every single time um so yeah no way more often than not he's dragging me through workouts so i had full faith i mean he was gonna be right there and also be uh under 210 have you guys found a sweet road in charlottesville (sighs) you know not not really all all the anything that would be similar is to like too mountainous you know where you actually can't can't get any good um you just wouldn't be able to run fast enough but we have different spots that equip that get the get the job done but no there's no perfect 10k incline all the way up to the top unfortunately yeah for the for those of you who don't know what john's referring to sweet road is the is the road that the syracuse team trains on and we'll link to an article on that in the show notes it's yeah. the Magnolia Road of, of Syracuse, New York. Though actually, I think it's right. It's the next town over, right? Yeah, I'm actually forgetting the name of the town. It's it's technically in, but it's 15 minutes from campus. Well, we imagine you have things to do since you're father of two, med student, COVID COVID cure. So we better let you go. But um, congratulations! It was it, it was really fun to watch. And thank you so much. Thank you guys. It was you know that was freaking a really a really fun weekend and i'm glad you know you know you guys are i'm honored that you guys are having me on and care and just care enough to uh talk about it so thank you very much okay we're now happy to be joined by the women's champion at the marathon project held over the weekend in chandler arizona it is sarah hall she Ran 220.32, which was a big personal best and the second fastest marathon ever by an American woman. Sarah, thank you. Congratulations. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we got to start with the race. Obviously, that's why you're on here. Like 220.32 is just a fantastic time. Only Dina Castor among Americans has gone faster. You've had, we're talking right now, Tuesday 
uh, you know, afternoon. You've had a couple of days to soak it all in. What are your what are you feeling about the performance now? What are your reflections, takeaways two days after the fact? Yeah, I think it, it does help to step back a little bit and get some perspective. Um, you know, I think I'd be lying if I said when I first crossed the line, I was just, I wasn't disappointed. So I definitely was. Um, and that's just part of my personality. I think I'm always just shooting really high. And, um, and the upside of that is like, it keeps you kind of, wanting to keep improving at age 37 and keep chasing these big goals. But then the downside is kind of sometimes it's easy to, to fall into that trap of like never being satisfied. But, but I think stepping back a little bit, like it helps me get some perspective and be like, man, like second fastest in history. Like that's, that's something to be proud of, especially just kind of my, how my journey's been. It hasn't been the most linear career for me. And um, I've just overcome a lot, even just in this last year to, to get to this place. And so I think that's helping me feel more excited about it and um, and proud of the performance, yeah. What have you had to overcome this year to get there? Well, I mean, obviously the biggest one was the trials, like the biggest disappointment of my, my running career for sure. Like I was, I'd really high hopes for that race and just like really felt prepared, really felt like I did everything in my control to, to make that team. And, um, and yeah, so that, you know, that, and then that took a while to kind of move on from, I think, just because for me, the easiest way to move on is uh, just to start racing again. And just like to use that fitness I built in that build up towards future races um, and just get back on the horse. But but this was kind of the one year you couldn't do that. Like every everything I had planned just got canceled and and you just didn't know if you were ever going to get a chance to um, use that fitness. So so that was that uncertainty. And and just never really getting to like turn the page on that was, was definitely um, a challenge for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly made the most of it. This fall, there were about three big marathons and at least they were available for Americans. You ran into them, you know, London, you get second, uh, kicked down Ruth Chepengedich, the reigning world champions run two twenty two oh one there and a pretty, pretty bad day for running fast, honestly. And then you come out here a perfect day for running fast. You go even faster run two twenty thirty two. So that's, you know, you definitely made the most of the opportunities that were available to you this fall. Yeah. You know, I think that's something I've learned in my career. Um, it's just, I've had a lot of disappointment in my career and, and I've just, I've gotten good at just like seeing like, what are the opportunities that are available to me? And I'm just going to like grow myself into those. And, you know, maybe it's like, I didn't make the world team, but it's like, all right, I mean, I can do the Pan American games and I'm going to like, just do the best I can in that. Or like, you know, this, this year when the pandemic first started, it was like, all right, at first, all I can do is do a race on the treadmill. And then, then all I can do is a race on a bike path by myself. And, you know, but I'm going to like, still just um, go after it with the same like drive and, and desire for excellence. Um, even, even if it's kind of a lesser goal than whatever the main goal was, you know? Yeah. I I forgot about that actually back in June, you set the, uh, treadmill world record as well so you and then you know you ran what was it 68 18 in oregon and that race in the half marathon so i think i don't know i don't know if there's been a busier american runner than sarah hole in 2020 <laughs> i tried my best like i love the race and you know those definitely weren't races the first couple but like it just helped to like have something to break up the training and just get a sense of where i was at um because especially when you live at altitude and you're just kind of in in like heavy training like 
um, you just don't know sometimes, or you just kind of want to get a benchmark. So I've been trying to encourage people about through the pandemic, even just to do a virtual race or something to, to break it up and, and get a sense of like how you're responding to training. Now, I know there's one thing Robert wanted to ask, and I guess it goes back to it goes back to the trials. You said this is the biggest disappointment of your career. And, you know, obviously you've been in really good You were in good shape last year in Berlin. You were in very good shape this year. But that trials race, you know, it, it went badly for you. You had to drop out. Was it what like have you had time to re reflect on what went wrong was it just that you didn't have it on that day the course was tough what how do you explain that result compared to sort of the great results that it bookended it yeah i mean it's pretty easy for me to explain like you know i was in the best shape of my life at the time i was in better shape than berlin that day and and felt really good going into that but um but it was the hardest course in history like it was the hilliest course literally in elite marathoning history and like um I did everything I could to prepare for that but at the end of the day like that just crushed my legs um and yeah I think there are some factors with that too but um but yeah I think um I think that's actually been kind of partly why it's been hard to just mentally like wrap my head around it is just like I think if the Olympic course were like that I would be able to be more at peace about it and be like okay that's just you know like that's just wasn't my thing and like um but I think with the Olympic course being a lot more like London or the marathon project it's hard because you're like man why did we why did we decide to like have the, the trials there but um but yeah you know it was up to me to like figure out a way to eat on that day and so I really threw myself into that build-up I did all kinds of crazy stuff and I thought I was ready for the hills. Like I was, I was feeling really strong on them and training, but, but yeah, no, I mean that I definitely, um, definitely wasn't, didn't even come close really. So, so I'll, I, uh, that was the question I wanted to ask, but like throughout your career, have you not been good on hilly courses? I mean, did you kind of view that as a weak, weak point? I mean, when I look back at the trials, it seems to me looking back at it, looking at Ray Tracy, it sounds like he just knew that Molly Huddle was not going to do well in that course. Like, I mean, you tried to prepare for it, but is that something historically you've not done great at? Yeah, I would say, like, maybe it's not my natural strength. Like, you look at my very first marathon, right? It was the LA Marathon, which is also extremely hilly. Um, it's kind of comparable to Boston with the amount of downhills, because it's really not the uphills, it's the downhills, you know? Because, like, the marathon, like, a big limiter in the marathon is the pounding, and then you throw in 1,400 feet of downhill in there, like it just kind of attenuates that so much. So, um, so yeah, that was like, I was in really good shape for my very first marathon, like, like ran some of my fastest Lake Mary roads even to this day. But, um, but it, it doesn't really matter if your, your legs just get crushed. Um, like it's like having two flat tires and have your engine be totally fine, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I think, and then, that also happened to me at Boston, but I can understand that a little more because I'd had a stress fracture before and like, so I was totally non-weight bearing. So I just didn't, like, I was even experiencing that some in my training, like just getting really sore, like in the tempos. So it was, it was a risk to toe the line there. And I think I was able to be like, you know, I'm better at, better at Hills than this is showing, but um but yeah you know I think with, with Atlanta it was just that much more extreme like even people that have run really well at Boston like Jared Ward and Scott Fogel like um you know they still really struggled on 
on that course as well. And so, so yeah, I think it was just, I don't think people really knew how they were going to respond to it. It was kind of like a big curveball for all of us. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious about, I mean, I asked your husband and coach Ryan before your race at the marathon project about this. And I thought his comments were interesting because I asked him, you know, if, if you run really fast in Arizona, which you did, you know, number two all time, the, the fastest by an American um, in 14 years. And you also had second place in London, which is the first time an American has finished that high in that race in 14 years. That's one of the best seasons we've had by a U.S. marathoner in recent memory. Yet you are not going to the Olympics. So I sort of asked him, like, how do you square that? Is that okay? Do you think we should stick with the team we picked? And I thought his answer was interesting. He said, obviously, how we select our team is different than how any other country does. And it has its strengths, but also its limitations. Ours is built around fairness. And I think the fair thing to do is to send the six athletes that made the Olympic team and earn their spots. That being said, this is the first time we've ever had the Olympics 18 months after the trials. And I think USATF would be justified if they chose to do things differently in this unprecedented situation. I mean, when you look at the situation right now, do you think USATF should reconsider the team they're sending? Or are you fine just abiding by the results of the trials? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a trap question, <laughs> but I think like, no, I think they should probably honor the results. And, and I think, yeah, like I accept that that's how we choose our team. I accept, you know, it is different from every other country and it, it's, it's hard. Like, you know, you get sick on the day or like, you know, then it's, it's pretty brutal. But, and so I think there's a reason why other countries don't do it that way. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting, like as a spectator, like getting to, I mean, Atlanta was incredible, like just like they did an amazing job and just the whole like broadcast of it and everything was like no one, like no other country is, is really choosing their Olympic team in a way that's like a, um, like an event that's being broadcast, you know, in such a high, like at a high level. And so, so I love that about them. I think it's just, yeah, I mean, obviously it, for for someone like in my situation or something, it can be it can be challenging. But you know, I've never really felt entitled to things in this sport. I've always just like felt like I'm just gonna keep like I said, like what are the opportunities in front of me and just keep moving forward. Yeah, so I'll apologize for the trap question by John. That was definitely a trap question. John, you need to watch out. She, she was a fan of yours. I saw last week she <laughs> signed up. She signed up for the supporters club for a monthly membership to to read one of your articles and. Now you're trying to get her and, and cut and got your journalism. Sarah, we're going to comp you a year's worth of, of membership. We don't want a world marathon major runner off second fastest American having to pay. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to get my brother to figure out how to send that to you. But, but thanks for signing up to read John's stuff. He really does normally does great, straightforward journalism, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate you guys' articles. No, honestly, I, I avoid your message boards like the plague. I haven't been on there since high school, but, um, but no, I appreciate what you guys do for the sport for sure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, I, my intention was not to trap you. Like, I just think this is an <laughs> unprecedented year. We don't normally have a trials in February for a race that is in August of the following year. Yeah. Personally, <laughs> my opinion, I think we should abide. You know, you have a trials for the Olympic team. You accept the results. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a unique situation. That's why I had to ask about it. Yeah, 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 it is. You know, I don't think anyone ever foresaw something like this happening. So... There's no clause in there of what would happen if that was the case. Um, so I think since there's not, like, we need to kind of abide by 
what the rules are. But but I think it, it has kind of inspired me to get a little more involved in kind of the like politics side of the sport just to like for future years, like to be like, let's try to preserve like creating an atmosphere where this course is going to be similar to the Olympic course. And it's not all about the broadcast. Like it's great to get the Olympic rings in there, but like, you know, let's, let's try to keep this like still like, um, I don't know, like from being really extreme or something. <laughs> so I think avoiding extremes in general, unless it's like an extreme that's like really close to how the games is, I think would be good. I agree with you. It doesn't make sense to run a hilly course unless the Olympics are going to be hilly or, you know, to me, another thing about the Olympics is it's normally pretty hot. So it seems like you should run it in fairly hot conditions, which wouldn't have been good for me back in the running days. But, you know, I mean, it sounds like the the Olympic dream. I mean, obviously for most runners, but particularly Americans, it's such a big thing. Um, I mean, looking ahead in 2021, there's not really any spring marathons. It seems like they've all been canceled, even Tokyo, which went on last year. So what is the plan? Uh, w- might you try to make the team uh, in the 10,000? I mean, your 10,000 PR is only 32.14, and you know, Olympic standards 31.25. But but do you, have you thought about trying to trying to go for it on the track? Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, spring marathons are not looking likely, which is why we chose the marathon project. Just because, um, yeah, you know, ideally I would have wanted to do something maybe more like early spring, and I was looking at like a Dubai or something like that, but. I was like, you know, I just am not confident they're going to happen. And, and sure enough, you know, it looks like that's the case. And so, so yeah, but the nice thing is about now um, having that this marathon done is that like it's more time till the track trials. So I do, I do plan to refocus towards that. And yeah, I mean, obviously my 10 KPR is way out of the range of what it's going to take to make the team, but I think I just haven't run one in a really long time too. So it gives me hope that um, when I do, that uh yeah just all the strength that i built over the years like I've, I've definitely done my best track work this last year that i've ever done so um i have a great training partner up here rachel schneider that has the fastest 10k time this year and so it'll be great to just work together with her and just really enjoy the process and um and just yeah just give it give it a big shot like i'm gonna go all in on on the track for sure so how, how do you explain your, your massive improvement over the last you know, two years. I mean, really up through the end of 2018, really, if you're looking at the stats, I mean, you'd raised eight, eight or nine marathons. You'd only broken 228 twice. Your fastest was 226.20. And now in the last two years, you know, you've gone over six minutes faster. You've gone 222, 222, 220. I mean, at age 37, like, is this, I mean, some some people were saying, oh, she's just kind of like her husband, Ryan. She was in the wrong event her whole life. She was really a marathoner and didn't realize it. But I'm like, that's true, but she's still way better now than she was in her first eight marathon. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that what's, what's kind of exciting about the marathon is like, all it takes is like two seconds a mile, right, to like gain a whole minute almost in the event. And so I've just tried to really like recommit every buildup to not just like doing the same formula, but like, how can I do this better? Like what, like, how can I just like, you know, dial in my sleep or like, like even just with training, like I like to experiment with things. Like I like to do things that are outside the box. And I, I'd say like what my program is now, like is pretty different from even maybe like what Ryan did. And, um, and that's kind of been a, a process. Like it's taken a lot of trust for him to, 
to like let me have freedom to explore and because he kind of can like like formula and want to stick to that but um but because husband wife you know you have that relationship and that trust that I think it's allowed me to to figure out some stuff that I really respond well to and um I think especially the last couple years like some stuff that yeah like I I've been able to keep making some gains that way and just um but some of it too was um you know it's, it's there's so many complex factors right it's like all going into it but like I had a really bad knee injury in 2012 and it took a really long time to get strength back in that leg and get my stride like totally symmetrical it's still not like all the way symmetrical but that's been a massive effort working with my therapist John Ball at Maximum Mobility and like strengthening wise like figuring out how to actually like bring that gap and I feel like just that alone definitely like each year that I got closer to that like that was helping my times and and really just like I think I just had a lot of room to to grow my aerobic capacity that I didn't realize like when I was running track I had gotten really fixated on kind of the the race specific workouts and and had kind of let go some of that um strength work that really like I had I'd responded really well to like in college or even in high school like I I did really long runs in high school and um so so yeah it, there's definitely a lot of a lot of factors definitely working with my therapist like he's kept me healthy a lot more when I probably wouldn't have been otherwise. And um, yeah, just a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned there was a couple like out of the box ideas you've been willing to try. And there's a couple of things, even the last couple of years you've changed. Can you go into a little bit more specifics about some of those things that you've done? Um, well, they're, they're kind of my secrets because, you know, I've kind of paid for them with injuries. And so <laughs> I don't, I don't give those away for free, but, um, but yeah, I think just like, general um like I've just found I'm able to handle a lot more than than I thought um even than than what Ryan could do during his career and I think that's really just my strength is is durability like I don't think I'm the most talented but like since I was young like in high school like I've always just really loved doing a lot like I ran like two hours and 15 minutes every weekend in high school like the day after a race and like the day before our interval workout and like I just loved it and and I never was hurt and so I think um I think like pairing like a love for the grind and and being willing to to like go to those um like being willing to grind and then having durability maybe naturally like I think that is kind of my strength and so I think I've just gotten a little more um empowered to like keep pushing that limits like to keep finding like how much my body can handle and yeah it's official i say everyone or doesn't think they're talented we have a high school national championship thinking she's not talented there's always someone more talented it's totally true but um <laughs> what what is your volume at and you can handle a lot you said so like well how, how high do you have you been were you, were you in this build-up um yeah th well this one since london i didn't really like add up because we do things a lot by minutes but i'm running like around two hours a day and um at least and then my workouts are are longer than that usually and um i definitely like when i would add up some of the weeks before london like i definitely get into the 130s um i think ryan thought he was running that much at times but i think that was like pre-gps you know and so i think now that we have like the gps watches it's all like everything's logged accurately but um so yeah it's it's kind of also like just the density of how much intensity i do you know it's, is a little bit different like um 
you know, I don't have periods where I'm just like building mileage or something. Like I always have quite a bit of intensity in my program. So I think that's, you know, it may not work for everyone. I've just, and I think that's what's kind of helpful about being outside of a team structure is like we can really cater things just to like what's working for me and we can we can take less rest if I feel recovered already versus kind of fitting into a system you know one thing obviously that that has changed in recent years is the shoes I mean I don't want to you know we asked Martin here this question like how much how many minutes does he think the shoes are worth and he said a couple but um he he didn't want to say more than four because he says he's still faster than his coach Chris Fox but I guess one way I would ask this question is if you were racing in the same shoes that you were racing in, say 2015, like how much slower do you think you would be? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, even in Berlin, like I was not in a high stack height carbon plated shoe like that. That race actually, like I was wearing this prototype that I had run like thousands of miles in and, and they tried to get me a new pair, but before the race, but it, it just didn't work out. So those ones were like flat as anything. And like, they're probably like a fourth or a third of the height as my shoe now. So, so to me, like, I'm like, I don't, I don't see that race having gotten like any kind of mechanical advantage out there. So I look at that and like, I'm, I'm less than two minutes or like I, I PR'd by less than two minutes here at this one, but I'm definitely fitter than than that race so I don't know yeah I think that's what's hard is like it's kind of hard to quantify I would say what what I found you know the first time I was in a high stack height carbon plated shoe was London and for me like the muscular fatigue um has been a big limiter for me in marathons and so when when you're asking about like even in you know how you keep improving like that's been a big area for me like I've had to get my legs like more calloused and and that plays in with all the pounding of the downhills too. Like, so that it, it's never really been like the, the engine for me that lets down, it's more like my muscles. And so I would say that, 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 I mean, as everyone's experiencing, like, I think that part is, is helpful for sure. Like having a lot more cushion for those later miles. Maybe, maybe you'll be a hill monster now moving forward. Definitely. I mean, I like, I definitely respond better to the hills now in these so um so yeah i'm really excited it gives me hope for like a boston and stuff to to get back out there and and see what i could do there yeah let's hope we have a boston next year they still haven't announced the date for that one but uh um i want to ask about something that des linden said on the broadcast i don't know if you got a chance to watch it back or any point but you know this was around 30k and this was just just as the sort of venus record was slipping away from you a little bit you know you hung on pretty well actually you were on 219.46 pace through 30k and then just faded a little bit the next you know 12k to the finish but her quote was was this and she was talking about the 219.36 american record that dina set in london in 2006 and she said dina's record is really an ear defining moment in time i think we're in a bit of a situation where records are falling down all across the world we have to get there as well and i love that sarah's taking a charge here at this 219 doesn't necessarily mean what it did when Dina ran. We've seen the depth of women's running just get stronger and stronger, and we have to match it. We have to make 219 commonplace in America, and I really want to see Sarah punch through today, close strong, and put us on that next level. There's a variety of reasons we're seeing these times fall, but we have to join the party. What do you think about that, and do you agree with her sentiments? Yeah, so there's a lot lot in there in that quote. I would say, for one, like, joining the party, like, 
Um, I think, I think, yeah, like we are seeing times fall, um, but not necessarily our American records, which is kind of interesting, right? Like Dina's still stands, Molly's, Ryan's records still stand. And so, um, so yeah, I'm not sure like attribute that to, but, um, but yeah, I think for sure, like, you know, for myself, like I was even kind of conflicted with, with the shoes at first, like, like, oh, maybe I'm never going to race in these out of principle, you know, but, um, but it's just a new era now. Like, and I think I just got tired of being on a, like, not on a level playing field. And it's hard to just know, like, how you stack up against people without that. And so, so yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely hope we can like have that kind of same shift that we're seeing on the global scene. But yeah, for some reason it's, you know, we're seeing the depth move for sure. But I guess those those high, like the records are still standing. So I don't know. What do you guys attribute that to? <laughs> oh, I mean, that's the, it's interesting because Robert and I were having this take about the men's race where there was a bunch of 209s. And he's, I'm like, well, that's pretty good that, you know, I think we're probably American marathoning is in a deeper spot than it was a few years ago. But at the very top end, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you had two guys who were really contenders in majors, which were Mev and Ryan. And now mm-hmm. you've got pretty much just scale and rough. So I don't I mean, I think for the top end thing, things, you know, you kind of just need some of those meteor talents. Like, yeah. You need a medical flesh. Yeah. You need, you know, Dina was remarkable. You know, she was the best marathon yeah. in the world when she ran that time. So I feel like, I, I guess I'm not, I don't mean to be taking a shot and saying you're not like a meteor talent like that. Cause obviously you're very, very good. But I think we just like, to get those records breaking, they're still pretty fast. You still like running 204 shoes or not, or 205 Canucci's record 204, which is what Ryan ran in Boston. You're still going to need a pretty monster talent to get that done, even with the good shoes. Yeah, for sure. You know, they're not going to run it for you for sure. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, Sarah, it's so, it's so fascinating. You talked about those records because I really, Ryan's 5943 is, it was just so unexpected and it just, I was so amazed by that. People didn't even know he was a good long distance runner. And then I, I, we got up to to watch London that year. We flew to London the next year. Like that just energized me for about five years. So I, I still root for that record. I don't want that record to go. But then in the middle <laughs> of this women's race, I, in the moment in this women's race, I was like actually posting in the message board. I'm like, I don't know what to, to do about this. Like Sarah's story is so cool. She's like 36 or 37 She's adopted the four kids. I don't know how she's doing. Her husband's been retired. This is so cool. But then I'm like, Dina's record, I kind of feel like it should stay. So it, it, I guess I would have been happy, um, you know, <laughs> either way yeah. in that one. But I, I still root for Ryan's record record to stay. But um, one question, we just talked to Marty Hare earlier today on the podcast. And, you know, we were amazed with him because he's a, you know, not he's a, he's in med school. He's got two children. Just the time management. How do you, how do you do it too? I mean, you don't have young kids, but you and Ryan. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You adopt four kids who don't. I assume didn't even speak English, right? I mean, how many years ago was that? They're teenagers. I mean, teenagers are a little bit more self sufficient than, than toddlers, but it's still a lot of work. Like, how do you manage? You know, everything. I'm just. I, I, I to me as a dad of one, I don't know how people could possibly train at a high level and, and parent successfully yeah yeah it's hard for sure like um you know I I try to like share some of it on social just because I don't like I think it's important for for other 
people that are parents and have goals and if they just make it it looks so easy for you and they're like man what's wrong with me like but it's it's not like I definitely have kind of meltdown moments um I think because I have high expectations for myself as a mom too like my mom was really involved and and Ryan's as well and so that's kind of like our norm and um you know I'm not like I think there's a lot of people that run professionally in our parents and stuff but you could also be like living at training camp all year long you know and I think it's like if you really are like and that's fine if that's like your what your family wants to do but like for me like I want to be a really present parent and and my kids have in some ways I think they're they're easier than um maybe if we had had biological kids obviously like going through the the body changes and the sleep and but then they also um like had a lot of really unique needs like they didn't know any English they had never been to school so once and like yeah with our oldest once we decided we were going to try to get her college eligible like that was a massive massive task like tutoring her a ton like just pulling my hair out trying to like teach her geometry that she's like never going to need again and you know so I don't know it's hard to describe um I think what what kind of kept me going is just seeing like getting to instill those things you want to instill in your kids like they get to watch me model those to them and and so that's kind of added a layer of like meaning to like doing this career while being a parent because I didn't think I would want to to do both at the same time because I knew there would be that tension I knew I I didn't want to like ever look back on my life and wish more for my kids or something um and but but yeah I'm, I'm able to see the benefits of like they're all girls like getting to model to them what a strong woman looks like like picking yourself back up after disappointments and going after big goals and succeeding and like that's like that's the stuff I really want them to to like grab a hold of for their own life but um but yeah I mean having Ryan not work a full-time job helps because we can share everything like it's not like he's like the Mr. Mom at all like he's he's got like multiple businesses and has a, like his he approaches his weightlifting as if it's like he's a professional weightlifter you know like he trains like just as much as when he was a runner so um so yeah it definitely has to be like shared but at least we can share it and he's not like traveling for business for weeks on end or something that that wouldn't work well it certainly seems that you've set a great example for your daughters i, I read there's a there was a touching piece you wrote on as well in november of you going down to Phoenix to watch your daughter Mia win the Arizona State Championship. And I, I would urge anyone to check that piece out because it was just like, I don't know, it was, it was, I thought your reflections and just, you know, getting to see her race. I don't think you got this because of the pandemic. And then finally you were like, oh, she's actually at the front because that was a weird feeling for you. I just thought it was really nice, well-written thing. So um, that, oh, that sort of crystallized the relationship you had with your daughters. And yeah, I thought everyone should give that piece a read. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been really neat, especially like my oldest daughter, right? She had the hardest situation, like starting school at 15, basically as a freshman in high school. And and like she was not confident at all. And just seeing like her confidence grow so much in herself and um, and to be running in college. It's, it's just like it's crazy to see what running can do. It really can be like one of the greatest teachers. So. Um, so, yeah, that's been neat. Did your children have any ties to running in, in, in Ethiopia? I mean, it's kind of, you know, amazing that she's a state champion if, if she didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, 
they had never run, but you know, I think there's kind of like a feeling over there where like they're like, I could become like Tiranesh if I wanted to, you know? And I think that's why you see like so many people training. And I think um, for her, like she had watched definitely the Ethiopian runners on TV and they were their national heroes. And, and when we first met her, we told her we were, we were runners and she was like, Oh, I want to run. And we were like, oh, okay. And, um, but it wasn't really because of us. Like, I think she, she did have that desire from watching it on TV, but she was really out of shape actually. Um, you know, she, they weren't allowed to leave a house for like three and a half years. And so she had done zero physical exercise. And in the orphanage, they're kind of like force feeding the kids. Cause, um, you know, some come in with malnutrition and stuff, but she had just been kind of like packing on the pounds in there and, um, was cause she was already like a teenager and, um, she wasn't growing anymore. So, so we had to really start slow with her, but, but since she, she did have the desire, it was cool. Cause, um, like once it came from her, then we could like fan that into flame. But, um, but yeah, definitely no experience with it before. The, um, I'm curious. I mean, maybe it's been written in an article somewhere, but like, did they, they were orphans. So how long were they with their, with their mom or dad, you know, with their biological parents? Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of their private story. We don't really like yeah. share. Um, but if they want to share, they're welcome to, but yeah, they'd, they've been in orphanage like three and a half years. We're actually really fortunate that we were able to finish the adoption. Cause one of the reasons why we felt compelled to adopt them is, um, you age out at age 16. So, so our oldest wouldn't have been able to be adopted, but, um, but pretty soon after we finished the process, Ethiopia closed international adoption for good. So, um, so I don't know what their, their life would be like right now. Um, and that's why, you know, with London, I, I did a fundraiser for homeless youth in, in Ethiopia, cause there's over 60,000 living on the streets just in the capital city alone. Um, and, so obviously that's kind of um, close to home because I mean, that could have been my kids. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's something we're supporting through our charity, the whole steps foundation right now. Well, one final adoption question. I mean, you know, Shailene Flanagan recently adopted, you know, a, a child as well. It's one thing that women face as professional runners that men don't face, like if they have their own biological kids, it's going to take at least a year off their career. Like, does that did that play into your desire to adopt? Like I, I know it's kind of a personal question, but it's it's kind of you know interesting that two of the most prominent American marathoners both went the adoption route. Yeah, um, that wasn't really the driving force in it. Like ever since I was young, I I wanted to adopt, and I don't really know how it started. I had a lot of adopted cousins, so it was kind of normal in my family. And then my sister, um, she's a malaria researcher that lived in Africa quite a bit and um so I'd go over and visit her and you see the orphan crisis over there and obviously international adoption isn't the answer to the orphan crisis but but for a few kids it is you know and for our kids it was and um they didn't have other options and so um so I've always really connected with with like the cause part of it um obviously with our foundation it's it's supporting um people living in extreme poverty mostly in East Africa our projects right now and stuff. And so that's just, I don't know, ever since I was young, that really, um, really impacted me just seeing poverty outside the U S and, um, I'm very like justice minded in general. So, so yeah, I think, um, that was really kind of the driving thing. And Ryan, that was kind of totally off his grid, but I, he remembers me talking about it on our first date and I don't know how we got that deep already, but, 
Um, but I guess maybe I was like putting feelers out there because it was going to be a deal breaker for me if, if he wasn't on board. But fortunately, he passed the test. All right. Well, Sarah, that's a, that's a nice little story to end on, I think, because we've probably blown past a little, I think it's a half an hour. It's been past that, uh, well past that. So we appreciate you making time for us today. And congratulations again on your efforts on Sunday. We actually, you always come out with another race. Like as soon as you finish one, we already know what your next one is. So <laughs> we're excited to go see you go to the RAK half marathon in February, take on some of the world's best there. That's going to be exciting, but yeah, thank you. Congrats again. And uh, looking forward to see what you do in 2021. Thanks so much guys. Appreciate it. And yeah, if you guys want to check out Herb Foundation, you can go to thestepfoundation.org, thestepfoundation.org. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Have a good one. Merry Christmas. Yeah, you too. Bye.